I went to meet teachers in Western Quebec in Canada. And as I sat at a round table with a dozen teachers asking them what their jobs were, I, it was their responses didn't make sense. They weren't familiar to me. Um, and the first thing I noticed was nobody said that they were in charge of anything. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to Rethinking Education, the podcast that features long-form conversations with fascinating people from across the education debate in a slightly vague but nevertheless heartfelt effort to bring about a more harmonious, less hair-raising state of world affairs. Today's episode features an expansive conversation I had earlier this week with Rachel Lofthouse, who is a professor of teacher education at the Carnegie School of Education at Leeds Beckett University. Rachel has a specific research interest in professional learning, exploring how teachers learn and how they can be supported to put that learning into practice. Teacher recruitment and retention are challenges both in the UK and internationally, and Rachel's research focuses on how we can create opportunities for teachers to experience career success and the knowledge that their contribution makes a difference to learners, colleagues and communities. Throughout her work, both as a researcher and as a teacher educator, there is a focus in Rachel's work on self-determination, professional collaboration and collective teacher efficacy, the latter of which John Hattie suggests is the single most important factor in improving educational outcomes for young people, which is good, isn't it? Because that's what we're all about. The first part of this conversation, roughly the first hour or so, focuses on a controversy that is unfolding in England at the current time, the current time being the summer of 2021, which I think can reasonably be described as the government's assault on providers of initial teacher training, especially those based in universities. If you're an international listener and you aren't particularly interested in this topic, or if you're listening in the distant or even (laughs) medium-term future, when nobody really cares about that time when the English government was really horrible to university-based teacher training providers, you might want to skip the first hour or so. But it is kind of fascinating, even if it is really quite alarming and profoundly concerning, so you may very well find it interesting to listen anyway. If you are listening in summer 2021 and you are interested in this topic, there are several links in the show notes to the various reports and articles that I discuss with Rachel. And if you'd like to help, there are two things you can do. Firstly, you can respond to the government's online consultation to share your views. The deadline is August the 22nd. The consultation is quite a long document and life is short. So there is also some guidance in the show notes on how you might wish to respond to the consultation without having to spend your entire summer holiday doing so. And alternatively, or additionally perhaps, you might also wish to write to your local MP to express your concern to ask for a longer consultation period, perhaps, or to explain why the continued delivery of university-based teacher training matters. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rachel. In the final part of the conversation, when we talk about problems in education more widely and how to fix them, 
Rachel mentioned several ideas that I haven't come across before, one of which was hinted towards in the excerpt at the top of the show, that I think are absolutely fascinating and which I'm going to give much more thought to in the weeks and months ahead. If you enjoy the Rethinking Education podcast and you feel moved to express your gratitude in a transactional way, there's a link in the show notes to a website called Buy Me A Coffee where you can do just that. You can contribute either in a one-off way or in a monthly way, I believe. Alternatively, if you would be so kind as to take a moment to give us a glowing five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, I would be eternally grateful. Okay, without further ado, I will hand over to my recent fascinating conversation with Professor Rachel Lofthouse. I hope you enjoy the show. Rachel Lofthouse, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you for having me. So I have followed your work for a number of years now. And as we've just discussed, we, we, we met a number of years ago um, at a roundtable discussion. Um, and I remember being really impressed with the, with the clarity of your thinking that day. And in particular, there was one thing that stuck with me that you said that day, and it's a really long time ago, so my memory might not do this, <laughs> do your, your take on this justice. So this was probably around 2013 or 14, and everyone was getting very excited around the ideas of around research and evidence at the time. And I, as I recall, you said that you had had a conversation with a young teacher who had said something like, you education researchers just need to come in and tell us how it's done. And, and your answer was to say something like, in order to become an education researcher, you need to know a really in-depth amount of stuff about a very narrow aspect of education. Like That's literally what a PhD is, isn't it? The titles of PhDs are always incredibly specific. And so academics are very good at answering questions relating to their area of expertise, but they're not necessarily particularly well suited to solving other kinds of problems or to fixing things at a system level. Uh, and full disclosure, <laughs> I speak as somebody with a PhD who would very much like to fix things at a system level. Is, is, do you recall this? Is, that, is this a fair summary of, of what the point that you were making? I think so. And I actually, I remember the conversation with the teacher that you're referring to. Um, and his suggestion that if every education academic was attached to a school as, if you like, as the sole problem solver for that school, so that not to say they would have all the answers, but that they were engaged with the senior leadership team to provide suggestions, that that would surely be a much better use of our time. And I, can, I had quite a lot of sympathy with his idea, but as I pointed out to him, um, as you say, the thing that allows you to become an expert in your field is not a disinterest in the wider education practice or world, but a very keen interest in a particular area of practice from which you gain insight through research. And so this assumption that because you happen to be somebody who works at a university with an academic profile in, in a field like education, that you do have the answers it is essentially flawed that we have we have suggestions that we can make in certain areas, but we certainly can't solve all the problems. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And there's, I mean, there's a 
we, we could go into a big conversation about the research practice gap and you know how the, the kinds of knowledge that, that researchers generate are just of a very different order to the kinds of you know practical practice-based knowledge that teachers need in order to do their jobs well um so i can see that yeah i can see the point and and it but it was an interesting suggestion that this teacher made thank you so okay um it's something that i've reflected on a number of times over the years anyway so so you are a professor of teacher education uh this will not come as news to you uh at the is it did you pronounce it carnegie 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 at the Carnegie School of Education in Leeds Beckett and according to your bio you have a specific research interest in professional learning exploring how teachers learn and how they can be supported to put that learning into practice um, and this is something that I'm fascinated by also my work at the Institute of Education and more widely is very much focused around the professional learning of teachers. Uh, just to ask a quick clarifying question before we go further, does your work currently focus more around initial teacher training or is it more around like continuing professional development or is it a bit of both? It's very definitely a bit of both. Um, and that's both in terms of the practice, my, my practice as a teacher educator, but also my research interests and the networks that I associate with. So I see teacher education as a lifelong and career-wired, career-wired, career-wide, career-wired sounds better actually, um, <laughs> endeavour. And um, yeah, my, my interest encompasses all career stages, um, all roles, responsibilities um, within schools and colleges, universities as well, I guess, as educators. And uh, I guess the thing which, which often connects those two together is the, is the process of mentoring or coaching, because quite often that is bringing teachers who are uh, further and deeper into their career, into the kind of daily lives of those of us, of those teachers who are newer into the profession. So there's that connection being made all the time there. Yes, yeah. And I know that lots of your work is, is based around mentoring and coaching and the collective ed network that you've did you did you were you you were essentially setting that up, weren't you? Yes, that's that, so collective ed is um the center for coaching, mentoring, and professional learning. It's gone through a couple of different um versions of that name since we set it up, but it was established as a research and practice center at Leeds Beckett University. And it was established soon after I joined as a new professor. So I joined at the same time as a number of others in the professorial roles. And the thing that we were invited to do each was to establish a center that would reflect the work we'd done, if you like, that drew us into the role that we had then embarked on as an academic and that would then carry that work forward and would be a recognizable, um, if you like, sub organization subset within the school of, of education i see okay thank you and i think we may get we may get into some of the work that collective ed um is doing later on uh, just be, just before we get into the to the starter sort of topic that we've that we've identified to talk about could you possibly paint a picture of like what does the work of a professor of teacher education look like on a daily basis or maybe it's easier to think about it on an annual basis Yes, it's not easy to think about it on a daily basis because there's no, no days are the same. So I guess one of the things um, is to recognise that it's unlikely that a professor is going to be doing a lot of the same sort of work 
that they did in the precursor years to becoming a professor. So in order to um, be appointed as a professor in my field, I had to have significant expertise and experience in teacher education. And as I said, that's both initial and uh, postgraduate and CPD teacher education. Um, and that allows has allowed me over many years to become, I feel like a very, um, I, well, I hope a very capable um, professor at in this field. But what was what is funny is that when you're actually doing the work of a professor, that you obviously aren't you're not quite so much of a chalk face, if you like. So being a teacher educator is is a te is a chalk face job. You're working directly, routinely. In a, in a, on a on a regular basis with um, new entrants into the profession and those who support them, so their mentors, for example. But inevitably, in a university or in a big skit, there's a team of people who do that work. Um, and I was very much one of the team of people that did that work over many, many years and led those programmes over a number of years. And then when I became a professor, and, it, and it's not the same in every organisation, but certainly at Leeds Beckett, the idea is that we're able to work in the field, so support the work of others, but also further the discipline through our research work and our ability to create networks, for example, of people. And But what you don't tend to do, also what, therefore what I don't tend to do, is on a daily basis open up my emails and see a deluge of emails regarding today's issues in teacher education in terms of what are we doing today, what programmes are being taught today, where are our students today. Um, other people have lots of responsibility for doing that. Um, my role as a professor is one where I'm, I guess, thinking a lot, I'm writing, I'm um, reflecting on the work of other people, uh, supporting the work of other people, I'm engaging in research, I'm able to make sense of some of the kind of landscape, partly because I haven't got my face up to that chalkboard, just being extraordinarily busy moving programs forward on a daily basis. So I'm able to step back a little bit, make sense of the landscape. Um, and if we actually look at what that means in practical terms, it means that I liaise with um, researchers, practitioners, locally, nationally, but also internationally. I take work to conferences, whether that's remotely or in person, whether that's just my own work or whether that's through coordinating um, projects with other people or drawing in um, other people from the same field so that we can present work in a coherent and dynamic way. I, um, I write papers, I review papers for journals, I uh, contribute to book chapters. I'm more likely, to be honest, to contribute a book chapter to an edited book than I am to write my own book. Um, I don't know why that is, but that's, that tends to be what I do. Um, I think about my research students, and I also run some specialist programs. So I run programs in co coaching and mentoring, for example, both at postgraduate level, but also um, without that attachment of the award. Uh, so I'm thinking about the, the, if you like, the practical application of, the, of my own and other people's research into running programs to support the development of practice. 
Okay, thank you, thank you. I mean, so so it's obviously a very varied role, and it's something that I mean, I think that sometimes people who aren't who aren't exposed to the world of academia, they don't know what academics do, and they, I think that sometimes this it seems to extend to people in government often seem to ask the question, "What's the point of academics?" That they like, what? Why do we need? I suppose that the naive question might be like, "Why do we need there to be people thinking?" and coordinating ideas and practice around teacher education. Why do why can't we just train teachers? We have initial teacher training and then they go off into schools and then they learn on the job. Why do we need this sort of this academic infrastructure that sits behind the profession? I think it's a good question. It's a valid question. But I think if you asked that question around other complex fields of human endeavour, you would stop yourself short you'd you'd ask yourself why you were even asking that question so teacher education is complicated um, because every single teacher that joins the profession is a unique individual they have each of they don't come out of a, a mold so if we're thinking about how we support educate and develop individuals then it becomes complicated particularly when what we're asking them to do in their role is an extraordinarily complicated job. So the job of a teacher is going to lead them into places where they are faced with multiple dilemmas every day. And some of those dilemmas will seem like uh, fairly um, trivial things, but actually when when you've met it, when you've met, for example, a child with a particular set of needs, it's not trivial. It might be just one child that you're meeting on a, you know, every two or three times a week. But for that child, the way that you work as a teacher will be critical in their ability to engage with learning and be successful in learning. So if we're teaching teachers and every single teacher is a unique individual and each teacher is meeting an array of children and they're all unique individuals, we've ramped up the level of complication and not, it's not just in terms of who are they teaching, the complication for teachers is what are they teaching and how is what they're teaching going to be judged and assessed, whether it's going to be judged on their performance or whether it's, you know, for example, being observed, teaching a lesson, or whether they're going to be judged through the assessment grades of the pupils that they teach and students that they teach. And, of course, every student teacher is entering a culture that is distinct. Each school has a distinct culture. So we've just got multiple, multiple layers of difference, of complication, and therefore of a number of dilemmas. And I think it's therefore worthy of, if you like, to be a field of academic study. Yeah, thank you. I I am convinced <laughs> by your answer. And I think that, that sometimes the people who are very critical of academia and you know in recent years there there was the so-called attack on the blob Michael Gove drew on I think it was Chris Woodhead who initially used that word to describe academics as this sort of like sci-fi monster that was out of control this leftist Marxist you know blob um, which is often characterized as in a very crude and reductive way and I think that the people who do that also often have 
quite crude and reductive views on what teaching is and what education is. And they look at it through quite a simplistic lens and they think it's about bums on seats, everyone facing the front of the front of the room. You deliver the curriculum using the most efficient means possible. You maximize the possible you know, number of kids who get like, decent exam results. And they see it as quite a sort of a simple endeavor. And I think that that's possibly because they're not academics <laughs> and they haven't spent time, you know, thinking very deeply about, you know, the complexity of the situation. So it's almost like by definition, like people who criticize academics and the work that academics do um, are ill-placed to, to comment because they they haven't they haven't immersed themselves in that reading, in that, in that literature. Yes, I think there's something in that, but I also think that we, you know, people are complicated beings. And we can cope with complexity, but also we quite like to simplify things. We quite like to adopt um, an outlook which, if like, we can convince ourselves, is is straightforward, is easily explainable to somebody else. And when we're doing practical tasks, we quite like, unless we're craftspeople, and sometimes we we kind of engage in craftsman-like activity, which is, you know which allows for complexity and it allows it allows for us to slow things down and and relish in that kind of the detail but actually in our normal daily lives we like to be able to feel that we're being quite efficient so if I just give you an example I have to water my garden unless it's raining and I know roughly how many watering cans I'm going to have to take from one side of the flat through the flat into the garden and I know um how much time it takes to fill that watering can. So I kind of know what I can multitask whilst watering the garden with. You know, I know whether I can also be cooking a meal. Um, I know whether I can also be answering a few emails because my brain has allowed me to work out that yes, it's complicated, but I can also achieve things in a fairly simple fashion if I just take control of them. So I think people do quite like to address the complicated world by seeking to take some form of control. And I don't mean that in a menacing fashion. I mean that in a perfectly legitimate human fashion, that we just like to feel as if we've got a degree of control, that we can fit things together in a way that is straightforward and easy. And I think sometimes we 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 want education to be like that because that's how we as people cope with a complicated world yeah of course of course and and it's understandable i completely agree um but the but still you know we can't we can't deny that the education is incredibly complex it's it's partly because it's rooted in our values and what we see as 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 being human involves you know and what what human becoming involves there's there's a, an excellent tweet that uh, Kate McAllister put out this morning uh, that said um, it's in response to a very long <laughs> conversation that's that issued from the from the last podcast, funnily enough, um, with Naomi Fisher, which is about self-directed learning. And Kate wrote, if the objective of school is exam results, then a knowledge-rich curriculum via direct instruction makes sense. It's efficient. However, if the point is helping children become well-rounded, knowledgeable, but also compassionate, healthy, purposeful, self-determining adults, it falls woefully short. 
Um, and that's partly sort of like the overarching theme, really, of this podcast is to is to break open these questions. I think that things are being portrayed at the moment as being very black and white, that it's just like, you know, like the Gavin Williamson gave a speech a couple of months ago where he was saying, we, we now know it's like almost like the science is in. We now know what makes for effective practice. It's kids sitting in rows, having an expert at the front of the room, imparting knowledge and the, the recognition that actually there's much more going on in this picture. Like you say, there are individual lives. Uh, teachers are different. Kids are different. They've got different needs and hopes and ambitions. And to have a one-size-fits-all thing is going to leave many people wearing ill-fitting clothes. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. And as I say, I think we have a tendency to, to try and make things efficient. And often we do that when we're under some degree of stress, and at that point, we can block out some of the more complicated, we, we need almost to block out some of the more complicated, more perhaps moral, ethical questions, because otherwise we're not going to deal with the degree of stress. So if you think about workload pressures, for example, they will put people under a degree of stress. And a response to those is to try and make things feel like we're in control, we've created a more efficient system. But in doing that, we've had to block out some of the more obvious complications in the, in the as you say in the purpose of education and yeah I, and I think the same can be said for teacher education as it can be said for school education yes okay so so let's get into that I could talk to you about so many things but we should there's one that I'd really like to to focus on first in this sort of first part of the podcast which is very current in the news at the moment and that is that the government uh, recently published this is in the, in England the government recently published something called the initial teacher training market review and it's interesting the language is interesting I'm not really particularly sure what a market review is but the very fact that they're using the language of, of the marketplace is is interesting in itself anyway th this report was published last month just a, a couple of weeks ago and it, and it came out at the end of a, what was obviously a very long and challenging and harrowing, difficult year, or a couple of years, really. But many listeners, especially international listeners, may not be aware of what's happening with this ITT, Initial Teacher Training Market Review, or understand the significance of it. And it's been quite a controversial thing. There's been lots of backlash and, and counter backlashes happening. So to begin, could you please firstly provide a bit of background i think firstly in terms of what's been happening in the world of, of initial teacher training in england in the last few years and then explain what this market review is and what the government is suggesting needs to happen okay so for um probably over a decade now one of the most significant changes in teacher training, and I wouldn't typically use the word training, but the DFE, the government will do, and their policy documents do. So one of the most significant developments has been a growth in the number of routes into teaching. So traditionally in England, teachers would have come through some form of graduation in order to become teachers. They would either have undertaken an undergraduate teaching degree, which had attached to it um, the ability to gain qualified teacher status, 
So a BA in education or a BA in primary education with science or there might be some specialisms along the way, but with QTS, qualified teacher status, which meant that um, predominantly uh, that those were primary routes. Many teachers go through a university degree, full degree, um, and gain their qualified teacher status at the end. And in order to gain their qualified teacher status, they would have to undertake a number of placements in school. They'd have to meet all of the standards that underpin QTS. They'd have to have the programme of study um, accredited both by a university, validated by a university, but also quality assured by our inspectorate, Ofsted, and also go through the external examination system because we're a university uh, provision. In addition to teachers entering the profession through that route, there has for a long time been a PGCE route into teaching. And PGCE, um, strangely, actually stands for two different things. Currently, it stands for both postgraduate certificate in education and also professional graduate certificate in education. And um, some universities will offer both routes upfront, and some universities will, will recruit people to a postgraduate, which means that it is at master's level, it means you have to already have a degree. Um, and if people are, people, student teachers are not quite making the master's level grade, they are able to exit with a professional graduate certificate, which is assessed again at undergraduate level um, and has exactly the same title <laughs> until you get the words in the title, uh, but has the same sort of currency in teacher training, teacher education. Um, so we've had both postgraduate and professional graduate and undergraduate university-based teacher education. So probably about a decade ago, maybe slightly more than a decade ago now, we started to, or in England, uh, they started to open up the number of routes into teaching to draw people away from a solely university-based provision. And Teach First is an example of that. Um, troops into teaching is an example of that. Teach First being significantly bigger as a uh, um, provider than the troops into teaching. Um, actually, both Teach First and Troops Into Teaching have associations with university provision. So they are allied with, they are providing qualifications underpinned by university provision. We also, at the same time or similar time, uh, started to provide school-centred initial teacher training, which is shortened to SKITS. And a skit is a validated provider who can recruit um, applicants into teacher training and who design, manage, provide a program of study with all the necessary placement opportunities for practical study in school um, and also are, the, are able to award QTS, Qualified Teacher Status. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of skits also actually allow their trainee teachers 
to engage in a postgraduate or professional graduate certificate in education offered by a university. Now, some do that because they have local links. So um, skip students arrive on campus. They engage often alongside uh, university-based students um, doing the same modules. And sometimes it's via distance learning. So at Leeds Beckett University, we have several hundred um, skipped students, but who are doing a distance learning PGCE. So the skit is providing the qualified teacher status, but the university is providing the academic award that goes alongside it. And essentially this has become a very complicated, a very diverse, um, you could say quite a unique teacher education provision. So I don't think any other country in the world has quite created what we have. Essentially, it means that if you are deciding to embark on teacher training as a prospective trainee or prospective student teacher, you have many, many options um, at that application stage. And the, those options reflect quite a degree of variation in the type of programme you'd be studying. The, the common um, underpinning um, basis of all of them, however, is that they all have to have um, an accredited or a validated and, and inspected ability to provide any trainee teacher or student teacher with the capacity to be awarded qualified teacher status because all of the criteria that are in place in order to award qualified teacher status exist across all of those different provisions. Yes. Okay. So th yeah, thank you. So so there has been this this incredible diversity uh, that's opened up in recent years, and there are a number that you've mentioned. Um, there's a new one called Teach Now, I think, which is for like older teachers, um, it's like the opposite of Teach First, if you like. And so and so the government is now describing this system as a marketplace. And essentially, the, the, this market review, as I understand it, they're suggesting that ITT providers, the market stall holders, if you like, need to get a license from the government and to meet certain standards in order to trade in that marketplace. Yes. So essentially the review, and it is interesting that they've called it a market review, because what that the basic premise is the market is too complicated and they need to streamline it. Um, they're overlooking a whole sort of suite of dimensions of any other market, but we'll ignore that. Um, so the market review is, is, is almost a counter to every bit of government policy over the last few years, which has opened up this diversity in provision. And it's saying there's too much provision. There are too many providers. It's too complicated. And actually, uh, they want all of the provision to be re-accredited um, in a very short period of time, with the re-accreditation being, if you like, the gate that providers have to successfully navigate in order to continue to provide teacher training. And... They're not using any of the current quality assurance measures. 
they're essentially starting again and saying, we're going to have a new accreditation process. And the argument for that is that the quality of education is dependent on the quality of teachers. That's that's a pretty valid statement, that if you've got good quality teachers, well-trained teachers, um, teachers who have the capacity to do the job well, then young people in education are more likely to get a good education. And that there's two, but the, uh, again, the premise of the review is that we need to secure the supply of good quality teachers and that the current system is unable to do that. The really odd thing is there was no existing evidence that the current system was unable to do that. All of the Ofsted inspections of all the provision was good or better. And anywhere, any teacher education provider that fails Ofsted is immediately disqualified. So you don't have to be accredited because you, you can become disqualified instantly. You know, we've had um, occasional examples of that where in the past, I remember at Newcastle University, a local skit suddenly failed its Ofsted inspection. It was actually the school that failed its Ofsted inspection. It went from outstanding to failing. And it lost, because it had changed its status, it could no longer be a skit. And over a very short period of time, all of the student teachers who'd been, uh, or trainee teachers rather, who'd been recruited to that skit to start in September, had to be found brand new places to study to become a teacher because they couldn't join that skit because the skit no longer existed. So we already have that in place. Um, however, this new market review is suggesting that none of what we have in place is adequate, good enough, doesn't do the job it's been doing pretty well for the last 10 years. Um, and that actually it wants to streamline, it wants to put everybody through reaccreditation. And the, the real challenge for us here are the criteria for that reaccreditation, because that's where the goalposts have changed quite substantially. Okay. And it's the goalposts changing that are going to exclude some, potentially exclude some current providers from being part of the system. Okay, thank you. Can we come on to the goalposts in a second? But just first of all, I think it's interesting to just firstly think about this rationale for, like you said, like like previously, the vast majority, if not all, of of these these initial teacher training providers were rated by Ofsted as good or outstanding. Um, but it seems like the goalposts have shifted in recent years, sorry, in recent months even. Uh, there was a blog recently by Terry Russell and Julie Price Grimshaw in, in which it says that pro for providers to have been downgraded in such a dramatic way, like you say, some of them going from outstanding to inadequate, there can only be two explanations. Either Ofsted have been getting things very wrong for a very long time, or the goalposts have now been moved so that they are now suddenly on a completely different playing field. And there's a blog by Terry and Julie, which I'll link to in the show notes, which details like so they've done a review of some of the these this recent round of Ofsted inspections of ICT providers, in which they say that the the evidence base for the judgments that are made in these reports are flimsy in the extreme, repetitive, poorly written, hypercritical, demoralizing, 
and humiliating. I'll just share a couple of quotes just to give listeners a sense of, of, of what's been happening in the sector. Um, for example, they say one report refers to positive re comments that were made about the provider by trainees. But then the report suggests that the trainees are wrong to be positive because they don't have anything with which to compare the program. <laughs> How would they? You know, they're not going to be doing more than one training course at, at, at any point in time. And th this blog goes on to say, Ofsted's own code of conduct for inspectors states that inspectors should, this is the quote, treat everyone that they meet during inspections fairly with respect and sensitivity, and also that they should take all reasonable steps to prevent undue anxiety and to minimize stress, close quote. And the final bit from this blog, uh, it says, in our experience of some recent inspections, Nothing could be further from the truth. Course leaders reported that they felt battered and bruised or even totally shot to pieces after discussions with inspectors. Some said it was the worst experience of their professional lives and they were unable to speak about the inspections without becoming distressed. So there's, it seems like there's been lots of activity that's been happening in, within Ofsted prior to the publication of this market review that where the goalposts seem to have very suddenly shifted and now people who were previously, providers who were previously rated as good or outstanding are all of a sudden on the naughty step in a big way. Is that the way that you read it? There has been, um, yes, it's been an unusually interesting period of time in terms of the Ofsted inspections of initial teacher training. Um, the first time I got wind of this was at a an online USET meeting, probably the executive board, where colleagues were reporting back either from their own, but actually from their partners' inspection experiences, SKIT, for example, SKIDS. Um, and they were using, they, they were shocked. There was a genuine sense that there had never been an experience like this that providers had had, and, and, and actually it's worth knowing that teacher training providers have been inspected much, much more frequently than the majority of schools. The, the, the kind of, the return visit is very frequent. Um, and it doesn't matter, you can be outstanding as a school and apparently not inspected for 10 or 12 years, but you certainly can't get away with that in teacher training. So most of us have quite a lot of experience of being inspected. And of course, most teacher trainers, whether they're in, if you like, the lecturer posts or the management posts, have also got experience of being inspected in schools. So this isn't, we're not, we're not naive, okay? But certainly the impression that was given, anecdotally at first, because the reports hadn't been published, was that there had been a very brutal round of inspections in the latter months of this academic year, this school year, on the back of a new inspection framework, um, which acknowledged the new core curriculum for teacher training that had come in in September, uh, but acknowledged that it was brand new and that therefore the inspection arrangements would see this year as a transition year so they needed to know that the core curriculum was being planned for, worked in partnership with our schools or all the partner schools to kind of, you know, get, get everybody's heads around the delivery of this new core curriculum. But that there would be an acknowledgement that it was a transition year. But, and also, of course, these inspections happened at the 
kind of third court, third part of the year of the second year of pandemic, yeah. when teacher training has been extraordinarily capable at carrying on, but hit very hard in terms of all of its normal practices, um, both at universities and in schools. So the words that were being used there were heartbreaking, brutal, shocking, demoralizing, unprecedented. You know, people had never experienced anything like this before, but at that stage it was kind of anecdotal. And right. then there were two or three or four of these reports started to come out. And they're reports both of skits and university provision. Um, and they have, in some cases, downgraded from outstanding to, you know, non-compliant, you know, inadequate. Um, and it has come at a time just after the market review was published. So the reports from Ofsted were published, these particularly damning ones, just after this market review, right. as if to help load the argument, weight the argument in favour of this premise that the market review is built on, which is that the teacher training provision as it currently stands is not up to the job. Prior to that, we didn't have those same reports. Yes, it seems like it, it, it's, there's, a, there's a heavy whiff of shock doctrine about this, isn't there? I don't know if you read that book by Naomi Klein, this idea that you, you never let a crisis go to waste. To be doing this, as you say, in the end of the second year of a pandemic, when, I mean, apart from anything else, people are on their knees, like the teaching profession is on its knees. I am, you know, I know that, you know, working in a university that people have found it very difficult to go into the physical places of work. It's been really hard and people have been working around the clock, like wrestling with new ways of working and so on. And the, the way in which, so this thing was published in mid-July, pretty much just, just before schools close, close for the year. And, and there's a consultation. So for, the, for any listeners who are listening to this uh, soon, at the start of August, 2021 uh, there's a consultation that's open for for another couple of weeks and i'll put links in the show notes um but again you know that's for another couple of weeks you know so and it, and it seems that so so as part of the pushback against this alison peacock the the chair is what's her title the, the head of the of the charter college of teaching um. Chief executive, chief, probably, chief executive, yeah, yeah. Um, and and assorted union leaders um, wrote a response in which they in which in the opening paragraph it says this feels like an attempt to railroad through changes to ITT provision with minimal opportunity for scrutiny or meaningful feedback, um, and also it's it's worth re reflecting. There was a recent report, so there's a, there's a, there's a, an APPG, an all, an all party parliamentary group. Um, that, that published a report recently um, um, authored by Jim Knight. I think it's called something like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it or something, um, in which it says all respondents to the APPG's call for evidence uh, were unanimously in agreement that there is no quality problem with newly qualified teachers. Um, and so it does seem like to beg the question: Why is it that this case is being made? So, so just to just to put the other the other side, the, the, the probably the the key the key section from the ITT review itself 
uh, refers to Ofsted. So it says Ofsted have found in their in their inspections of ITT providers that too often, and that's an interesting phrase, too often, like how often is that? Curriculums were underpinned by outdated or discredited theories of education and not well enough informed by the most pertinent research, like who gets to decide what the most pertinent research is, um, and concluded that, and this is quoting a quote, I think from Ofsted, the ITE sector, the initial teacher education sector, must now develop stronger and more ambitious ITE curriculums. This means developing curriculums that are, isn't the plural of curriculum, curricula? Anyway, this means that developing curriculums that are better designed around subject and phase, more integrated across the partnership, and more informed by up-to-date and pertinent research. There's that pertinent research phrase again, close quote. So it does seem like it's <laughs> sort of a self-fulfilling exercise that, that Ofsted have sh suddenly shifted the goalposts, found lots of previous, previously good or outstanding providers to be suddenly inadequate, and now all of a sudden everything needs to change and, and you've, you've got two weeks to answer the consultation. Um, it's, it's pretty bold stuff. It is, and I, I think that when the market review is citing that sort of comment from Ofsted, they're referring to a report that was written a few months ago um, that was based on a number of research visits, so not inspections, not under a framework. So there was um, clearly, as the pandemic continued, for far longer than any of us imagined it would or wished it would, um, the way that ITT providers were having to adapt um, all of their provision was, was being quite rightly scrutinized. Um, what, what nobody did was give up and said, you know what, it's impossible to train teachers when schools are closed, or it's impossible to model good teaching and learning that we would normally do in in person, in university settings or in training rooms, if everything has to be on Microsoft Teams. So nobody ever said, we can't do this. Everybody carried on. And Ofsted were charged or made, I don't, to be fair, I don't know whether the DfE asked them to do this or whether they decided to do it for themselves. They decided to um, visit a number of providers, again, both skits and universities, to undertake some research about how teacher trainers, teacher training provision had coped with and adapted to the impacts of the pandemic. And, I, and again, I, we weren't inspected, but I know a number of colleagues in other institutions who were. And I say inspected wrongly because this was not an inspection. This was a research visit. Right. Um, and it was... When they turned up, the inspectors were there for quite a long time. We're not talking a day, we're talking several days. They met with um, trainers, whether those are university lecturers or um, teacher trainers working in schools. They met with mentors, they met with trainees. Um, they would have had to have done most of this remotely because it was during periods of uh, remote provision. Um, but it was a fairly insistent set of meetings. 
Um, and But the premise was that they were coming to discover how the sector had coped with and adapted to the challenges of the pandemic, and that they would write a report, and that this would be helpful because they'd write a report, you know, giving some insights into what we'd, we'd been doing. So uh, quite a lot of places were visited. Um, quite a number of inspectors would have been involved, and a report was written. And most people were really quite shocked by the report because rather than focusing really on how extraordinary many providers had been in adapting their programs in the light of the pandemic and how extraordinary many partnership schools have been in continuing to allow student teachers to work in, in as whatever kind of teaching contact they could have with their um, pupils and students in those schools, rather than focusing on that and highlighting some of the innovative and interesting practice and sharing that more widely, mm. they chose that moment to say that what the sector was doing was still catching up with the new core curriculum. So when they refer to, um, I've forgotten what word you said, pertinent, pertinent research and curriculum, this was this brand new curriculum that had only been introduced in September, halfway through a pandemic. Um, and this was not intended to be the focus of those visits, but it became the focus of the report. And they did use a killer line, and it kind of became the headline, which is that ITT provision wasn't ambitious enough. Yeah. Which I think people deeply took offence to because managing ITT provision during the extreme challenges of a pandemic is not something you do if you're not ambitious enough. And taking on board a new core curriculum at that time is not something you can do if you're not ambitious enough. Um, so it did feel as if it had been a research set of visits that had been used to essentially deliver an inspection judgment which was deemed to be unjust yeah yeah it does all seem to connect doesn't it and so and so um unsurprisingly um there's been quite a quite a considerable backlash against this so there was a piece a couple of days ago in the times higher education supplement with the headline universities refuse to and then in quotes slavishly follow close quotes teacher training plans um i'll just i'll just share a little bit of an excerpt just for the benefit of listeners i don't know if you've read this piece as well it says opposition has been mounting to department for education proposals under consultation that would introduce a new accreditation system and impose stricter controls on universities freedoms to shape their own course content and we might come on to what those goalposts are in a moment in response to the consultation, the University's Council for the Education of Teachers, USET, which represents providers, warns that it is very likely that many experts and highly successful providers of teacher training will decide not to participate in this disruptive process of reconfiguring programmes. It goes on to say teachers should be more than just executive technicians the continued involvement of some universities in teacher education might be at risk if they are expected to slavishly follow and accept current and potentially time-limited DfE-approved orthodoxies and deliver prescribed curricula. 
And that I'll, I'll put there's loads of really interesting things in that article, and I'll, I'll put um, a link again in the show notes in case people want to hear more about that. Um, but it seems that so the the, 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 the that article cites people from the universities of Oxford and Cambridge who are both you know the two top universities in the country and you know are widely acknowledged to have outstanding teacher training um provision um people the director of of their education departments or the, the director from the university of oxford department of education and the senior pro vice chancellor for education at cambridge um are quoted in the report as saying that this is just not going to not going to wash and that um it just it just looks like it's um set for a set for a, a mighty battle and and that you 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 mentioned in prior, prior to us recording this conversation you said that there's been like a counter backlash where Nick Gibb the schools minister has has written a letter saying to people you know you're wrong to oppose this or something yes in response to the unions and the chartered college of teaching essentially saying this is really problematic the way that the review has brought recommendations and the short consultation period, et cetera, et cetera. The response to that from Nick Gibb was a very immediate letter. So there was no thinking time involved. And like, how should I deal with this very serious concern and criticism from some of the key organizations representing the profession? There was no, no, no thinking time. And, and the essence of the letter was, uh, no, we're right. Uh, this is an essential uh, market review. The recommendations um, are absolutely appropriate. Uh, there should be no concern at all about, um, if you like, the timescales. Um, and essentially, it was just a rebuff. And I, I guess you would you would say, well, what else would you expect? Because the market review is published by the DfE. Nick Gibb has always taken responsibility for this part of the DfE's work. Um, honestly, don't know whether Gavin Williamson even knows that we train teachers. He just doesn't talk about it very much. But um, the rebuff was, was just rapid and it was just unequivocal. Unequivocal? That's not quite the right word, is it? Unequivocal. Unequivocal. Yes. unequivocal. <laughs> so the, we just got nowhere, or they got nowhere with that. Um, and I guess, as I said, you, you, this, there is now posturing. There has to be posturing around this. Um, but the problem with that is that it just it stops being about the like the real essence of the of the the concern, if there is a concern, and just starts to become about positioning people on opposite sides of a relatively artificial debate. I think this is, a, is an artificial debate. Um, and I think that, I mean, what's also interesting is that, you know, they are very generously allowing a period of consultation. It was only because USET fought for a period of consultation that we have consultation at all, because at the beginning there was going, there was never a plan for consultation. So, there, there essentially, it seems to be not a lot of wriggle room. One of the problems here is, is that because they've put such, not just such a short timescale on the consultation, but such a short timescale on this re-accreditation process, one of the things that is possible that the DfE will relent on is that timescale. They may say, well, you can have another year. 
that actually in order to get your validation papers, your partnerships reestablished, everything reorganized, it is generous of us to give you another year and then we'll take you all through reaccreditation. And there is, a, there is an argument that that would at least let people make sense and rebuild, because we are talking about a fairly fundamental rebuilding of the sector if we're going to meet these, these criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, it would give people more time to think, do we want to be reaccredited rather than kind of knee-jerk reactions of we're withdrawing from this or we've got to hastily put everything together because actually people's jobs rely on it. People, the, the provision of new teachers into a particular region relies on us. So we kind of have this moral obligation almost to be reaccredited, even if we don't quite like the gatekeeping nature of it. Um, so there's, a, there's, a, the, there's one group of people who are just saying, just give us another year and we'll sort it. And then there's, there's a possibility, I think, that the DfE will do that. And then they'll say, look, we listen to you. But there is another underlying concern that it's not just about the extra year, it's actually about the nature of the recommendations and what that actually means in terms of the type of provision we will have um, for new entrants into the profession. Okay. Um, and so if there are if this is anybody listening who would like to respond to this consultation, um, we'll put a link in the show notes. So, so what, what would your position be? Because that because it seemed like it is interesting that there was such a, a quick smackdown to that letter from Alison Peacock and the union leaders, because it, it did basically just say, like, let's have another year, like you're rushing this through. You need to think about it really carefully. This is a massive overhaul of the sector. And it's off the back of a pandemic, which was maybe not even off the back of it. The pandemic's likely to be continuing into the next year or so. Um, maybe let's just take a bit more time, like you say, to think this through. What would be your take on it? I, I imagine that you're going to to contribute to the consultation. What are the sort of the, the key the key points that you would want to make? Uh, well, as always, there's lots and lots and lots of questions on this consultation um, portal. Um, I, I guess the main points that I will make, and, and I, I'm going to con- uh, write a response which is on behalf of Collective Ed. Um, and I've gathered a few views already from our advisory board and, and our network in Collective Ed, but also just drawing on my own um, understanding of the field. I will raise concerns around the configuration of the curriculum that is underpinning all of this. And, and there's a, a real difficulty in that because as indicated by the fact that Ofsted are already inspecting us in relation to that curriculum. The the market review does not present the core curriculum as even slightly negotiable. That's already gone in, that's already in place. But what it has done, I think, is it's brought the, the nature of that curriculum and the arguments for and against that curriculum into a if you like, into the view of a wider group of people who are now genuinely quite concerned about the nature of that curriculum. So I'm certainly going to comment about that. And my main comments about that are that whilst the argument around the core curriculum is that it's based on the best available research, um, it is very definitely a narrow gaze into the best available research. So if you've already already decided, for example, 
that cognitive science is a fundamentally essential um, part of the way that we understand how learning happens and you pay attention to the cognitive science research, it is fairly easy to say these are the foundations of a curriculum for training to teach that rely on cognitive science. But if you've chosen not to pay attention, let's say, to example, uh, for example, to aspects around um, child development, uh, the impact of attachment, uh, trauma on children and young people and how those impacts might impact on their ability to engage successfully with adults, including teachers, with peers, with systems and structures such as schools, and how those that research, if you like, sheds light on some of the challenges that young people experience in education. If you've chosen not to look at that, then the best research in that field is not included in the core curriculum. So the first anxiety is that the core curriculum is not strong enough. In, and you could, and what they always used to say is, that's fine because it's just the foundation. If you're a teacher training provider, you can decide what additionality you want to include in the curriculum, which is true. However, if you're teaching a very short course like a PGCE and the number of days that have now got to be spent in school on certain types of activity in school, which is part of the recommendation, is being tightened, then your leeway in your short course for the additionality is being reduced dramatically. So there's a, and also the concern here is that the ability to be re-accredited is on the basis of being able to prove that the core curriculum can be taught to good enough effect. So that's where the kind of concerns around the curriculum come in. If you like, it's a, it's a noose that's being tightened. And at the same time as the noose being tightened around that curriculum for teacher training, there's also a number of serious questions being asked about the evidence base. So for example, the Education Endowment Foundation published a report around cognitive science, not saying this is a redundant evidence base, but saying, this evidence base needs to be more used, used more intelligently. Yeah. And the nature of the evidence needs to be understood in a more nuanced fashion in order for it to be used more intelligently. It isn't, if you like, it, it isn't the answer to every question that every teacher and school leader ever, ever had. And we need to be more considered about it. But that's been published after the market review and the core curriculum for ITT put cognitive science absolutely centrally as the best evidence available in helping us understand how to teach and what to train teachers in. So training teachers in using cognitive science. But cognitive science needs to be used more intelligently, apparently, than any of us have really done yet. And yet it's now at the, if, if like it's a bottom line of both the core curriculum and the reaccreditation of uh, initial teacher training. So that's one area of concern. The other area of concern really is the um, ability of providers to create 
the types of partnerships based on the types of quality mentoring and quality school provision that the recommendation requires. Now, I, I, again, I don't have any problem at all with trainee teachers or student teachers spending a significant proportion of their time training in schools, learning from teachers in schools, being mentored in schools, teaching in schools. You know, I, I am genuinely convinced that workplace learning is essential in training to teach. Um, and so I'm, I'm not in any way saying we should take trainee teachers or student teachers out of the workplace, the schools, and put them back in lecture theatres, tip the balance back in the favour of university provision or centralised provision. I, the balance is, is subtle, but it's needed. But what we're asking or what's being asked from this set of recommendations is a much more kind of highly charged, more meticulously managed um, set of partnership agreements in order for schools to provide the workplace learning for trainee teachers. Now, I think we do need to pay serious attention to those, but I'm not sure that actually the research evidence that has been drawn upon to underpin the market review has been the relevant research evidence in terms of looking at the nature of successful workplace learning or the successful mentoring. There is no evidence cited in this market review or in the core curriculum for um, teacher training around mentoring. Research in mentoring is entirely overlooked. And yet we know that mentoring is a significantly sophisticated additional role that teachers take on and that it is not easily perfected, um, particularly when workload pressures are extreme and when we work in a system where people's performance is judged on a relatively narrow set of outputs. So mentoring, all of the research evidence around that is overlooked and I think it's been overlooked at several stages now and it needs to be drawn back to the attention through the consultation process. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think that I think that to to um, to offer an alternative perspective on the mentoring thing, at least there is more mentoring. There is more of an emphasis on mentoring in the early career framework, and there's more guidance for mentors. And and in my own experience, having been a mentor as well as being mentored, there's previously been very little guidance or anything really offered to mentors, and it has been a bit of a of a blind spot. I think it's been it's a difficult thing to to, to challenge. And, and uh, I think credit where credit's due. You know, I've, I've been I've worked a little bit on the early career framework, and there is more of an emphasis on, on mentoring, at least you know, of of early career teachers, uh, which I think is welcome. Um, but but where and, and but but the, the the other thread that you were talking about there about the narrowing of the research base and the use of this word pertinent as though maybe it would be impertinent to to question the pertinence of this research base. But it does seem to be very heavily focused on on cognition rather than emotions, which we know we know are really important aspects of education. I've got someone coming on the podcast later in the year called Mary Helen Imodino Yang. I don't know if you come across her research. 
She's based out in, in uh, at UCLA. She's absolutely fascinating. She's worked with Antonio Damasio. I'm reading her book at the moment about the, the vital importance of emotions in learning, which is completely overlooked, in my view, by all of this focus on long-term memory and retrieval practice and cognition, as though it's just a rational, logical process of, of information processing. And it's like a computational model of information transfer. And it overlooks the, 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 the person that you were talking about, you know, things like attachment and, and trauma and like things that, are, that really profoundly affect people's ability to learn is overlooked i think in this in this very narrow base and and you can see how that how that narrow um, view of the research literature is reflected in the in the curriculum that you were talking about in the initial teacher training curriculum and in the early career framework and in the new national professional qualifications that that school leaders have to take in order to become school leaders um and you can you can see that there's a thread going throughout the whole thing and it seems like there is a clear attempt to to control the flow of information and and any any research or evidence that's considered by people within the DFE to be superfluous uh, or you know surplus to requirements or somehow you know overly overcomplicating the matter. One of the quotes from um, the, the, in, in that article that I mentioned earlier, the, the the article in the Times Higher Ed, it says that concerns have been raised that the DFE prescribed curriculum would treat some orthodoxies around teaching practices as incontestable, as though like this is just settled now. We've had the debate, everyone had a fun time, but now we know that it's all about cognitive science and retrieval practice and memory. And so off we go, let's just charge ahead with this as the, as the central focus of initial and continuing professional development through into leadership. Um, it's very clear that there is, a, you know, quite an effective land grab happening, you know, like it's it, it's happening at, at pace. Um, but clearly it's something that's happening on such a massive scale that if it's wrong headed, if it is too narrow, you know, like there are lots and lots of people who are going to be affected by this teachers and ITT providers, but most importantly, young people. Um, and and if they're not going to be well served by this huge sea change in the way that we think about teachers training and professional development, then that's obviously of profound concern. And I think that my my I, I would definitely argue strongly for another year. I think that you need to have deliberation and you know in 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 um, in public life and to really very closely question and, and cross examine any any large-scale policy initiative like this before rolling it out because the, the consequences are just so vast you know it might be an amazing thing that's happening but you just need to give it time and like giving it two weeks over the summer holidays and to do all of these these um these these things at the end of a pandemic it does feel very shock doctrinaire <laughs> and uh, and it just seems like it's you know, we need to take a pause. So, so I would I would urge any listeners to to take some time. Like you say, the, these consultations are almost like quite off-putting, aren't they? Because there are like large numbers of questions to plow through. Um, but please do so. And there's also a bit of guidance that I can include in the show notes on how to go about um, responding to the guide to, to the consultation. Um, not what to say, obviously, but you know, just how to structure it. If you find that useful. I don't know if you've got anything else to say on this topic, Rachel. We've given it a good hour or so, I think, before we move on to other other things. Um, 
Oh, well, we, we could easily talk for more hours, but I think that, I, I, I guess it just depends on what we consider to be at the heart of the profession. And if we are happy to concede that somebody else, not always people with practical knowledge or experience, has deduced what is the most critical evidence that teachers should use in order to do their job, and that as teachers, we will never need to go beyond that evidence base. If we're happy with that, then let's go down this line. Let's let's follow this set of recommendations because it will make things easier in the long run. But if we are unhappy with that characterization of the profession, then I think we all have a responsibility to say, do you know what? We appear to be at risk. And I don't think, if I'm honest, that we will do much to turn this around at this point. Not with the current political um, scenario that we have. But I think that it's really critical that we at least do the thinking now and we document our thinking now, because this is not the end. Even if this goes through, we will be in for another review of teacher education without doubt because let's put it frankly, why wouldn't we be? So, as you know, in the Rethinking Education podcast, I like to take some time to find out about the guest. And obviously, there is, you know, there's much more to you than than uh, than this work uh, that you've been that you've been that you've been describing just now. So, can I take you back to your own childhood and your own experience of education? What was that like? What kind of a school were you at? Both both of your parents were teachers, weren't they? Yes, they were both both teachers, both secondary teachers, um, and I was the oldest of four children. And uh, there is less than five years between the oldest and the youngest of those four children. So it was a fairly busy household. We kind of grew up very much in sync with each other. Um, so it didn't take very long for one of us to have started doing, I don't know, going to secondary school for the last one also to be at secondary school. Um, and my parents, as I say, were both teachers. We lived in Essex for the majority of the time that I was at school. So we moved there when I was five and a half. And we lived um, there as a family until we all started moving north to go to university. And then my parents came back up north as well. So we, we all now live very much in the north of England. So I went to a grammar school, a girls' grammar school. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more about that before uh, too long. But in order to get to the girls' grammar school, it meant that we lived in a catchment that was selective. And I honestly believe that we lived in a selective catchment by accident. So we had moved from Leicestershire to Essex for family reasons. My, parent, my father got a job, my dad got a job in a school. He got a job in a, in a comprehensive school in one district in Essex. 
and we lived just over the district border in another district. And it just so happened that the district we lived in was selective. Um, my mom taught in the secondary modern round the corner from where we lived. And as children, as we grew up, we all went through uh, one of the grammar schools, um, boys' school and girls' school, so different, uh, different schools. Um, we went to a primary school that was quite a big primary school on the London Road called Wesley, Wesley School. It was an infants and a junior school on one site, um, lots and lots of concrete. Um, but what was quite unusual about it was we had a an outdoor swimming pool in the middle of the concrete yard wow. that we had um, swimming lessons in. And during the time that I was at school, the swimming pool got covered with one of those big bubbles that had an airlock. So you, we did have weekly swimming lessons. That was quite an un unusual thing, I think, for anybody at school. I'm assuming um, this was a heated outdoor pool. Um, it, I, you know, I genuinely can't remember. Um, <laughs> the the airlock, the air was warm. <laughs> Whether the water was warm, I can't remember. Okay. Um, but what's interesting about that is I actually think I remember my my swimming teacher as well as I remember any other teacher, because my swimming teacher was my swimming teacher for years and years. Mrs. Woodward, because we would go in there every every week from late prime late infants through to junior school. Um, it was a school that uh, prepared us for the 11 plus. So if our parents wanted us to do the 11 plus in order to go to a grammar school or try to go to grammar school, um, then the school was supremely good at preparing children for the 11 plus. And therefore it was a school which um, had a very competitive catchment area. So being able to you know, buy a house to get your kids into that school was considered to be quite a, a triumph. Um, but it was a good school um, in that, you know, many of the children did pass 11 plus. Uh, uh, but it also, you know, we had a fairly robust and round, rounded education. We did lovely uh, productions, you know, school plays, musicals, we had a good orchestra, you know, junior school orchestra, but it was, it was a good orchestra, we had choirs with lots of uh, there was lots of sport. I wasn't very sporty, but if you were sporty, it was not bad for sport. It was the sort of junior school, I think, that most people would be very, very happy for their children to attend. And were you happy to attend it? I think I was generally quite a happy primary school pupil, yeah. Um, right. I I guess in, in some ways, you remember that, that quote from Ofsted, that these student teachers don't have anything to compare it with, so how can they possibly judge that they're having a good training? I guess to some extent you're a bit like that, aren't you, when you're at school? You don't have anything to compare it with. But, yeah, I, it was generally quite a happy place to be. Made a lot of friends and, yeah, grew up well, I think, at junior school. And then went, did the 11 plus um, and was successful and went to grammar school. Now, what was interesting about that, and I'll, I'll talk a bit more about the school, uh, but actually at that point, the doing the 11 plus, which was January when I was 10, nearly 11, and the waiting for the results, and not just waiting for your own results, but waiting for all your friends' results, to then discover what the destiny of you know, yourself was, myself, and also my friends were for the next five to seven years, that was a very 
very emotional period of life. Mm. That, that 10, 10 to 11 in terms of age, doing the 11 plus, waiting for the results, getting the results, discovering who was going where. So, so you were very aware of it. You know, lots of people say that like, the 11 plus was sort of, they did it, but they didn't even know they were doing it. And oh, it's no, sort no, of no. downplayed. But at this school, it was like a big deal. In this school, in this town, it was the big deal. Um, and I lived on a, a residential street, um, suburban residential street in Essex. And you were aware that there were, even from quite a young age, one of the things that was very noticeable was that as you watched people walk past the house. So first thing in the morning, you'd watch the blokes in their suits, literally with bowler hats, some of them, walking to the train station for their commute to London, because this was commuter zone to London. So the bankers, the accountants. So that would happen at about quarter to seven. They would all walk walk from left to right and then um there'd be this kind of like the rest of the family would get themselves organized the families on the streets so um there'd be kids being taken off to the local primary schools um and then there'd be kids going off independently more often to the secondary schools and everybody that I knew on my street went to the same primary school so we, we kind of ganged together I mean there was I, some of the neighbors would perhaps walk 10 kids to school it was about a mile away to sort of you know to kind of rationalize the who's busy doing what sort of thing in the neighborhood and we would all walk in the same direction in the same uniform if we chose to wear it but then as soon as you hit 11 and went to secondary school you'd been sorted so there were four grammar schools two girls two boys four different uniforms. They kind of were a bit rank ordered, even the grammar schools. So you could usually tell whether somebody had come at the top end of their 11 plus grade or was within grammar grade, but not quite at the top because they went to the other grammar school. At different times, those would flip a little bit. You know, one would would, would be deemed as preference because you would write your order of choice down as a parent for your child. But they had four different uniforms. So the boys, girls, two different grammar schools, they'd head off. And then there was the secondary modern, which is where my mum taught uh, with a maroon blazer. So they would head off. Those were the kids who had not passed their 11 plus, went to secondary modern. And then there was the occasional kid who went out of district down to a comprehensive. And that was either because their parents or they had chosen not to do the 11 plus, so they were no longer in the system, or because they had got their 11 plus result and not wanted that result and somehow found themselves a place outside of the district. So they were off to the um, the comprehensive school a few miles away. Right. So you would have this sudden transformation at age 11 of kids into sorted, like sorting hats from Harry yeah. Potter, but sorted by their uniforms, heading off for different buses or different walks or on their bikes into different places. So very, very aware. And, and that awareness of, of the sorting out of children, the rank ordering of children based on a single exam um, was partly because of what was happening to me and my peers and what I'd seen happening to the older children before we even got to that stage, but also because, as I say, my parents were both teachers and inevitably there was conversation around 
you know, what has been going on at school today around the dinner table? And that would include us as kids, them as parents. And that would bring us into this kind of sense of um, the subtle differences that existed and not so subtle differences that existed between the schools in the area. Yeah, wow, you're painting a very vivid, very, very vivid picture there. And, and the way that you're that you're able to to be so sort of specific and you're you're very aware of this at the time. And that's that's really that's really coming through strongly. Well, it, it was quite acute because my best friend, who who'd been my best friend since the moment I'd lived on that street, age five and a half, and who I'd gone to infant and junior school with, and whose parent had walked me up and down to that school, she went somewhere else. My next door neighbor, um, who again, um, I was good friends with, he went to the secondary modern. So there were three of us that all took the 11 plus, we were all in the same class, we took the 11 plus on the same day. And four or five months later, we were headed to three different schools. Wow, it's like there's some like a contrived plot line in some cheesy play, isn't it? Uh, where you all meet up years later. Um, wow, yeah, that's fascinating. And so, what was your experience of of the grammar school? Well, again, you don't have an experience of any other secondary school to compare it with. Although vicariously, we did because our parents were both teaching in them, so we heard about other schools, and obviously, we had friends in other schools. Um, but it was. So what was it? It was, um, I guess it was a bit like a, um, everything you imagine a grammar school's like. There were only four classes, so it was quite small. So four classes of 30 started every year. We'd all passed the 11 plus, so we were all deemed to be on a par in terms of levels of ability. So there was no streaming or setting and essentially, we were divided into four classes based on our surname. Mm. So I sat in a class with people whose surname started with a letter similar to mine. Um, and we sat at desks with lids. And for the first two or three years, um, the teachers came to us. They, they came to our classroom unless we were doing science, art, or home economics, or PE, where we obviously went into those specialist areas. And we sat in our desk that was determined on the alphabetical order of our surnames for three years. And we had all our stuff in our, in our desk or in our bag. And our bags got progressively heavier as we took homework and textbooks backwards and forwards to school. Mm. So, so you're describing a very highly ordered environment. It felt it. It felt ordered. And, and felt did that? Calm. I know you didn't. I know you didn't have anything to 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 compare it to. But did you like it? Did you did you feel comfortable there? I think. Um, okay, I, I was up for the academic challenge, so I enjoyed the work. Um, I enjoyed meeting people from other schools you know so my new peers I did enjoy meeting new people and yes it was very ordered and organized but one of the things that I the, you know if you think what are my strongest memories my strongest memories are um the the lawns which we sat on for hours at lunchtime so we had proper lunch hours we would have to walk about, I don't know, four or 500 metres across the lawns down to the dining hall. 
to eat our packed lunch or to get our school dinner. And that would take probably half of the time. And then we would have time to go and sit and chat. So there was, you know, we it was sociable. Um, so I remember that. I remember it being very, if you like, you could, you again, you could grow up there and find yourself. Because although it was relatively ordered, it didn't feel regimented. It didn't feel as if we were being cloned, actually. Right. Um, I am of an age where we did O-levels, not GCSEs. O-levels were quite interesting curriculum. There wasn't any coursework. I know that. Um, but the curriculum seemed quite broad. When you ended up in an exam, there was always a choice of questions. So you were you never felt like you were struck by panic because there was a, a non-negotiable question that you couldn't answer. There were some multiple choice papers and that, that was non-negotiable, but the bulk of the O-levels were long answers, choice of questions. I remember that, and I remember the same A-level. So you could learn, we learned a lot. You you could prepare for exams and acknowledge the bits you were strongest on and be fairly confident that you were going to be able to show what you were strongest on when the exams came, that it wasn't this kind of, you know, cliff edge point. So I I was fine through all of that, as well as the grass. <laughs> there was a swimming pool again so we used to go but that was an outdoor swimming pool and no it wasn't heated so that was only in the summer but the, the interesting thing about the swimming pool was that that was shared with the boys school next door so there was a huge great big hedge between the two schools and the only time when you spotted a boy was if you were going down to swimming and they and, and you were kind of like they were coming out and we were going in and the irony of that of course was that we had walked down the field in our swimming costumes with our towels wrapped round us and they were walking away in their trunks with their towels wrapped around them. So we didn't see them in their uniforms. We only ever saw each other with our towels wrapped around <laughs> us because the changing rooms were nowhere near the swimming pool. So there was a slight irony in that. And um, what was your like, what's your what's your sense of of like having been to a single sex school? Do you think that that's a good thing? People often say that it's better for girls than it is for boys. That girls who go to girls' schools. Um, benefit in particular do, do, do you think that it affected your ability to relate to, to boys or men later on I guess a measure of it was as soon as we were able to I was one of a small group of girls that went to the boys school to do an A-level um, I chose geology A-level and about 50% of that choice was influenced by the fact that it was taught at the boys school um, <laughs> and it was and it was only me me and my friend Emily we went across three three days three afternoons a week for our A-level geology um, how do I feel about it? I think, okay, so alongside school, um, I was also very much part of a, um, a kind of a youth club culture at the local church, um, which was less to do with church and more to do with the kind of youth club culture and opportunities. So we did a lot of um, residentials and we put on a lot of uh, productions, pantomimes, and we just had a, a a really good time and that what I loved about that was that was the place where friends that had gone off to these different schools all came back together again um, and we mixed much more across the ages so I've got very good friends who are two or three years older than me who I would never have met at school even though actually they did go to my school but who I met through the youth club so in terms of did it 
what what did going to a single sex school mean? Well, it meant that um, it was a pretty as you grow up into adolescence as a girl, it's a pretty intense um, emotional stance often, and that you know you that there was a, there was a lot of falling out, falling back in, there were lots of cliques. Absolutely, there wasn't any social media, so none of it was kind of heightened by that. Um, there was probably a bit less worry about what we looked like whilst we were sitting in school in our uniform than we might have been worried about if we were sat next to boys. But we absolutely engaged in the bus stop culture where we all mixed. And so the kind of lipstick would go on as you walked up the up the road to the bus stop. Um, but my sense of it was that it was quite a straightforward place to be. However, it was a narrow curriculum because it was A, a grammar, and B, a girl's grammar. Right. So there were there was no design technology, for example. There was no woodwork. There was no... Um, the government and politics was at the boys' school, not at the girls' school. Really? That sort of thing. was a, It was a different curriculum set up at each school. Fascinating. And, and so did, do you feel like, I mean, did you do, did you go straight into teaching out of university? And, and at what point did you, did you think, did, did you always sort of have in the back of your mind, I'm going to become a teacher because mum and dad are teachers? Or no, how, did that, how did that happen? I guess it was always very familiar to me. I'd never ruled it out, but I'd certainly not, I, I'd never stated it as, a, as an ambition, as a, as a young person. Um, I went from school uh, straight to university to do natural environmental science. Um, and that was a fantastic degree, absolutely a pleasure to do a brilliant, a brilliant degree in, in order to better understand the world that we live in, um, both the physical world and the human world. Mm. Um, can I can I ask about this? Because you you very helpfully sent me a few uh, bullet points under each of the headings that we're going to talk about. And you mentioned in the bullet points, it says that concepts that you get encountered in the natural environmental science degree have resonance with how you think about education systems. I'd be interested to hear more about that. Okay. Um, actually, I wrote an editorial for Chartered College um, publication, Impact, which drew on some of this, but I'll I'll try and find them again in my head. So one of the things that I'm very interested in is in so in my degree, so it was it was a, um, a combined honors degree. So it, it began with biology, geography, geology, which was which were also the A levels. So it's a very easy progression, natural progression from A level to this degree. And the first couple of years, you essentially took half a biology year, half a geology year, and half a geography year. So you were doing more content than, than a pure honours degree. It was, mm. was, was a challenge. Um, but in a single day, I might go to a lecture from um, in the biology um, department from, let's say, an ecologist who might be looking at um, soils and the kind of the world global patterns of soils and how different climates create different conditions that create different soils that then allow different vegetation that, you know, and how this sort of system has, you know, is sort of self-regulatory, but also um, quite fragile and vulnerable. But you might do something where, if you like, you were spending the morning thinking about things on a global scale. And then you would walk across the university into a geology lab and you spend the afternoon looking through a micro 
scope or a spectrometer, looking at the tiniest, tiniest crystals that you could imagine in an igneous rock. And this notion of being able to cope with things at a global scale, but also this minute scale, and recognize how they all were interlocked together, I think is a really interesting way of understanding education as well. Mm. Whether you're looking at it from the point of view of, let's say, a single child in a whole school, or a single subject in a whole curriculum, or a point in time around this, for example, the ITT review, in a lifetime of policy around mm. education. This ability to recognize, appreciate, acknowledge, understand things at different scales and how they connect to each other intricately and intimately, I think, was something I really learned from my degree, which has really helped me in my choice of profession, in my understanding of education. That's one example. Right. Another example, I'll just give you one more, would be around the concepts of sustainability. So vulnerability kind of the critical dynamics that create systems that are either sustainable or unsustainable. I think I can take some of my understanding from the natural environmental science world, which, although the degree was natural environmental science, clearly massively influenced by human activity mm. into an education sphere. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that. So so it seems like it gave you a, a, a interesting sense of perspective of being able to see the micro within the macro, but also to see the interconnectedness of all of these different elements within an ecosystem, mm -hmm. but also, also a sense of, of fragility and vulnerability and how affecting one thing can have ripple effects. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, things like um, how a single um, if you like, actor within a natural environment can have a catastrophic effect. Um, so that notion of power, power doesn't seem that critical in the natural environmental world, but it, but it is, and it is similar in schools. So we have, yeah, some interesting resonance, I think. Mm. Um, okay, and then so so the next thing that so there's two questions that I sort of have simultaneously in my mind. One is about the 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 way in which you went from so you you trained as a secondary school teacher, didn't you? Um, yes. How you went from being a secondary school teacher had the, the the route into academia. Um, I'd be interested to hear about that, but also about this idea of significant learning, which I always ask my guests about. And that's this idea of, and it might be that that that, that might be an example of significant learning for you. I mean, obviously, you know, you changed your career. Um, but I'm, I'm particularly interested in this idea of, you know, things, things that have really shaped you as a person. And you were talking, for example, about how your degree has shaped your thinking around education. Um, and the, one of the reasons that I'm interested in this is that, that moments of significant learning, it seems, um, often don't take place in formal educational settings. Like the, the learning that shapes us as people is often much more accidental, much more sort of spontaneous. Could be a conversation that we have or, you know, life experiences that we go through. So I'd be interested to hear about that as well, alongside this sort of the, the formal educational journey that you've been describing, the more sort of personal developmental route that your life has taken, if you like. Okay, so let's just take the formal first. So, yeah. Again, I didn't have any gaps. After I finished my um, environmental science degree, I moved straight to do a PGCE. I moved from Sheffield to Newcastle. Um, and the reason for doing that um, was, 
I guess, personal. It was a kind of a draw to go to Newcastle. Um, but also that I'd been offered a PhD um, and the PhD was very much in environmental science. It was in peat bog reclamation and it was sponsored <laughs> by Fison's. And the field work would have involved standing on, well, not standing, um, investigating uh, peat bogs that had been stripped for compost. Um, and then were being, there was an attempt to reclaim them because that's a very significant environmental degradation. Right. And it was a fascinating topic. And I could imagine doing it, but I couldn't imagine doing it for three years on my own, even with a good supervisor. And he would have been, Dr. Wheeler would have been a very good supervisor. Um, but it was the bleakness of the landscape that kind of put me Yeah, there's something kind of, about <laughs> yeah, peat I knew it. I knew where it was, Thorn Waste in uh, South Yorkshire. It was a bleak landscape. And what I didn't understand then is the way that joining an academic community might have actually been, if you like, enough of a counter to the bleakness of that landscape. I hadn't appreciated that. Anyway, chose not to do that. My friend did that and went on to work at a very senior level with the Environment Agency. So it worked brilliantly well for him. Um, and I think peat bogs are probably in a better, better state as a result, um, or some of them at least. Um, but I decided I would do a PGCE. Now, the reason I decided to do a PGCE was I'm sure at the back of my mind thinking, I guess I could do this. It, it, it kind of runs in the family. Um, I, I've kind of lived and breathed it. I, I, I kind of, it's familiar. I'd be interested. Um, and the second reason was because I thought it would create a set of really good transferable skills that I might take elsewhere. Because at the time I was thinking I'd be very interested to work in more of the kind of grassroots environmental education. Um, so whether that would have been for a charity or a trust or outdoor education, you know, um, field studies council, that kind of work. But I thought I will do really well if I take my degree, I gain a teaching qualification and a few years experience and then move into that. Um, and that is what I said, I said that in my interview. Um, that you know, I thought probably I would move out of schools and into more informal education. Um, but that didn't stop me getting a place, which is lucky. Um, and then I, so I did my PGC. I did that at Newcastle University. It was extraordinarily lucky that David Leet, who's now Professor David Leet, yeah, um, kind of partially retired professor now, was my tutor. Um, really oddly, I was the first person he ever interviewed for a PGCE programme because he had joined the university the year before, inheriting everybody onto that year's course that somebody else had interviewed. And then I was so keen, <laughs> so ready, I, apparently, that I was the first person to be interviewed for the following year. And that meant that I, I had a place at, P at Newcastle and we moved up north and um, lived there for many, many years. So that was a really formative year. And yes, of course, there was a formal curriculum and it was a PGC undertaken under partnership arrangements. So we were, you know, there were a number of weeks that we had to go into schools, just like now we had to have a mentor. They had to write reports about us. We had to teach a certain number of lessons all the sorts of stuff we'd recognise, not quite so much of the paraphernalia, but it was all, the bare bones were there. 
Um, and there were 12 of us on the PGC programme. And we were a kind of a great group of, of young people from the age of 21 to about 31, probably. We got on really well, but we were extraordinarily different to each other. So there was 12 utterly unique individuals learning to teach geography at that same point in time. And I guess that was my first insight into the fact that you genuinely cannot create a production line for teachers because we all entered from different places with different life experiences, with different school experiences, with different degrees, uh, having gained different types of work experience along the way with different motivations. And, the, and we came out as different to each other as when we entered. We just had embellished our skill set and our knowledge base substantially through our PGCE. But that so was a really formative experience. What was it about your about about that PGC course that enabled that was sort of responsive and adaptive rather than sort of making like forcing all of these twelve different people through a cookie cutter process? What was it that would that allowed them to 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 sort of to have their individually individuality respected and embellished in the way that you described? Um, I think it was. It would okay. So partly is it was because our tutor David, um, whilst he was. He'd been a tutor for a year before. He was still relatively new as a PGC tutor. Um, and, he, and he would say to us quite openly, I am learning how to do this with you. Some of this will work, some of it won't. So we had a lot of opportunity to think carefully and critically, not just about what we were doing when we walked into schools ourselves as student teachers, but actually how we were learning alongside each other and with David and drawing on his knowledge and expertise mm. and also his gaps and vulnerabilities. So there was quite a lot of that. It was a very open um, learning environment. Um, it was assessed. We gained qualified teacher status, but it was, um, there was some fluidity in it. Yes, there were, I think we did three or four formal assignments um, and there was choice. So I remember choosing to do a short module on, I think it was called game-based learning and it wasn't anything to do with online gaming. It was literally, um, what do we know about how um, children and young people and adults engage with games like Monopoly, Snakes and Ladders, um, other sorts of games, card games, I guess, um, about how they think and how they learn and how they work collaboratively and or competitively in those sorts of scenarios. And what can we take from that that can help us develop our repertoire as teachers, which sounds like a really bonkers module. You know, it was probably the sort of module that just one guy put his hand up one day and said, how about I do a module on this and we make it an option? And I remember doing it and it was it was it was really interesting. Can't tell you any theory behind it. There probably was, but I can't remember. I mean, it's 30 odd years ago. And I rem remember handwriting an essay because we didn't have laptops. All of our essays were handwritten around that module. Mm. Um, I remember doing a module on behavior, um, but not everybody had to do that module. 
you know, there was some choice. So I guess some of it, we, came, we didn't come out as cookie cutters because there was a degree of choice, even on a PGCE, even right. on a short course. And I guess the other thing that really, really helped was that because we were quite a small cohort, um, we were able to be matched in an interesting way to schools and mentors. There was a bit of kind of, you know, bespokeness to it. So I know, for example, that David looked at my profile and kind of went, right, okay, grammar school girl, she really needs a bit of an eye-opener. And so my first placement was out in the West End of Newcastle in the September, October, November, following a summer of riots in the West End of Newcastle, um, you know, civil unrest um, in the estates there, and just working in those comprehensive schools with the most phenomenal set of teachers and kids and just kind of going, all right, that's what I needed because I needed a bit of rebalancing mm. my other experiences. Wow. Was that linked to the, was this going as far back as the minor strikes? Why Why was there civil um, unrest? It was part post minor strikes. Um, so it would have been 1990. Um, very hot summer, I guess. It was just, you know, what? every now and again, we have a summer of riots, don't we? Um, and it was one of those summers. So right. I moved up to Newcastle and immediately we were aware that some of the parts of the city were experiencing a degree of unrest. And, uh, you know, there'd be a lot of sirens and police helicopters. And it felt quite, you felt on edge a bit. Uh, but it didn't last for very long. But it was it was interesting. It was very interesting. Mm. And so, how did you how did you find going into that uh, into that environment? As as you as you say, having been to a, a girls' grammar school and had a very different experience of school, it's often for teachers who have been quite. Even if you went like I went to a mixed comprehensive school, but I was in top sets, and lots of teachers were right by definition. Teachers have got degrees generally, and they tend to be done fairly well in the education system. And when you when you go and then teach in schools, you see another side of the education system that you weren't exposed to as you went through. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Absolutely every bit of it was alien, apart from the fact that I was teaching geography, which I was confident with, um, and apart from the fact that teachers are teachers and they want to do a good job. Um, and, and certainly my experience was that they'll work hard together to do a good job. That wasn't alien. Somehow that was very familiar. Um, but, I mean, let's be honest, the first week I couldn't understand a thing anybody said to me because the Geordie accent was entirely incomprehensible. And I was entirely, I was comprehensible, but I was considered to be either from New Zealand or South Africa because <laughs> clearly not from England because I just have a different accent. Um, I, I think the experience was um, extraordinarily nurturing and nourishing in lots of interesting ways. And one of those ways was that the mentors, well, there was there was a mentor um, and then there were other members of the department were just fabulous. They were just so welcoming. They were so open. They were so inclusive. They wanted us to be part of everything we were doing. We weren't there very long. I also say us because I was on placement there with another PGC student. So the pattern was paired placements to start with and then single placements. Um, for the second placement and myself and Craig we were we got on we were fine we weren't particularly good friends but we got on 
Um, but what we were able to do was um, uh, the school was split site as well. So we would often find ourselves walking at lunchtime from one site, probably about 20 minutes across the city to the other site, including across a road bridge over the A1. And we would talk all the way there and back. And the talking really made sense of what we were trying to do and what the challenges were. Mm. Um, the other significant thing that probably was quite significant was that it was going into November, December, but we went in for a number of days, you know, on our serial visits. Then we had our block of placement there. And a couple of weeks into the block of placement, um, three members of department, I think there were only four in geography, were all car sharing and they came off the road on black ice and didn't come back. <laughs> they were fine, but they, their car was written off and they were pretty bashed. So they didn't come back for a couple of weeks, but it meant that for a little bit of time, Craig and I were essentially the geography department. So they always, there was always supply teachers um, or, you know, cover teachers. We were never just abandoned. Right. But for a couple of weeks, we, you know, I'd said that these mentors in the department were, fast, were fantastic and they were, they weren't there. They were recovering from their injuries. And it meant that we had to step up. We had to, we had to make some decisions. And we had to, we were the experts in these kids because the supply teachers didn't know them. And that was such a, a learning curve. Mm, baptism <laughs> um, of fire. And again, that's not for me saying, well, I think we should just shove people into a classroom without any support. You know, it doesn't matter if the mentors had a car crash because clearly it did. But we've been so well prepared during the serial visits. And those first couple of weeks that actually when it came to the crunch, we were like, don't don't worry, guys, we can we with your support, we can continue to do this. Right. And that was a really that was really quite good, I think. Yeah. And so I can see why, you know, the, the roots here in what we were talking about earlier with regard to the ITT review about how you feel. So why you would feel so strongly about preserving and maintaining and cherishing, you know, a, an approach to, to inducting teachers into the profession, which had served you so well. Yeah, and you could argue, but that's just my view, my based on my experience, and it's it's bound to be biased. It's yeah, of course. Bias. Yeah, n but, equals n equals uh, one, and all that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I have that. I then uh, having successfully navigated the PGC, I then did teach for nine nine years in secondary schools in the northeast of England, including being head of department. And then I went into being a PGC tutor. So I essentially took David Leet's job uh, when he went on to a secondment. And I, I held on to quite a lot of those principles, I think, as we, I mean, we, we went through several versions of revalidation for the PGC whilst I was there. But underneath it all, I think, is this deep sense of respect for each student teacher as a unique learner and also as a unique potential contributor to the profession that you you actually need a profession made up of all the talents you don't need everybody uh, made the same way yeah I, I think that's a really important point and you also want young people to experience a wide array of adults to look at it from the other end of the telescope as it were uh, thank you that's a really interesting point Okay, so is there anything else? Um, we've talked about a few moments of significant learning already. Are there, is there anything else uh, when you think about key moments that have really shaped you as a person that spring to mind? 
Um, one of them is not a moment, well, several are not moments actually, but I think I'll, I'll give you a couple and then you can decide what you'd like to pick up on. So one of them I think was being brought up with two sisters and a brother, um, going to a girls' school and having lots of female cousins and aunts. Um, and there are blokes in the family, there's just not very many in the wider family. Um, and I think that sense of growing up at a time where we, we were quite connected with each other, but not via social media, as I've already said. And we were sort of, we had a sense of where people's lives were going and how they got there. And if I just think about my cousins, I'm at the bottom end of quite a wide age range of cousins. And so as I went through school and into university, my older female cousins had gone through school and out into the wider world, some through university, some not. Um, but they were all of them out there working. There were doctors, psychologists, um, nurses, teachers, a range of people out there working. There was no, at no point in our family did anybody say, are you just going to go and get married and have children? Or when you get married and have children, will this stop? Right. Or, so I genuinely don't think we were that unusual, but I think I was, I, I never had any um, point in my youth where I thought that because you're a young lady, a young girl, a woman, whatever else you want to call it, you can't do these things. We just did these things. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I think that was really important. Yeah, so it was just assumed, and and that's clearly not always the case. And and I've had uh, previous guests on the podcast who have said that you know that the plan is when you get older you need to marry some rich guy, and it's especially something that's you know that was done around that time, said around that time to girls and young women that 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 is you know the future. Mm, well, that wasn't my experience, but I'm not saying that it wasn't a sim it wasn't a different experience for other people at that time, or, and even currently now. Um, so I think that was important, and that's probably enough said about that. Other things I think have been really important, I mean, I'm 52 now, so I'm looking back on a lot of things. So I have three children, they're all in their 20s, and they're all adopted. So I have been a parent by adoption. I am a parent by adoption. And I think that's, that is a, you just can't do that without embracing it as a learning experience. So there's something there, which I think has shaped me. Um, and then the other thing which I think is interesting, and actually now I look at it and think about it, I think there's a relationship to being an adoptive parent. There's something that I call edge work and boundary crossing. Now they seem like quite technical terms, but I think in terms of my learning, I learn a lot at the point of boundary crossing and being on the edges of things. And I think actually that also relates to being an adoptive parent as well okay. as in my work. 
Can you can you give me a worked example of what this might? Maybe that's not the right phrase, but just an example of um, of what you mean by edge work and boundary crossing. And then, yeah, I've been interested to hear more about about the the way in which being an adoptive parent has shaped you as well. Okay, so being a, so, yeah, a pretty simple example. When you move into when I moved from being a teacher to being a teacher educator full time, there was a period of time which on reflection would, I could characterize as very productive boundary crossing and edge work. So I was at, in a secondary school, a head of department, um, head of geography. So it's not a huge department, uh, but it, you know I was responsible for um, teaching and learning for um, a significant number of children and young people and working and managing the practice of others. But I was given the opportunity to step across an edge into the teacher education field before I'd left that. So I was able to take on a role as a visiting lecturer, probably it was called. And it was just occasional, but probably over the course of about a year, maybe 18 months, I was invited to go and do a number of sessions for the PGC students. So I would go, I would be able to be negotiated out of school for a day and I would go and run workshops for PGC students. And particularly that was because prior to the job I was then in as head of department, I had taught in a sixth form center and had gained enormous levels of experience of teaching A-level. And they were looking for somebody who could come and do some work with the PGC students around teaching A-level. So my area of expertise became useful. I was able to go and work with PGC students. That, and I really loved that. I loved preparing those sessions. I remember, I remember the sessions I taught then. I loved the opportunity to work with these like, you know, excited, excitable new teachers to kind of experience some of the dilemmas that they faced um, as they were moving through. And I, I also did some work where I took on the role of visiting some of them to observe and teaching as a visiting lecturer. So on behalf of the university, but whilst I was still there. So that's kind of, that's quite obvious boundary crossing. So I, I wasn't, I didn't have my feet under the table at the university, but I was undertaking some of the work of a university um, lecturer and having to get my head out of teaching secondary into teaching adults, teaching geography into teaching for teacher education, taking what I knew from one, translating it, but thinking about it carefully, putting it into a new context, taking what I knew about being a mentor for student teachers, and then using that to be supportive as a visiting lecturer, visiting other students in other contexts, but being able to have a conversation with their mentor about them on the basis of my experience of mentoring, all of that sort of stuff is, is boundary work, really. And we probably do it more often than we would name it as such. But it's, but it's where a lot of learning happens. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're sort of describing tr the transferable skills. That's the thing that you mentioned earlier, that when you wanted to become a teacher because you thought you would develop transferable skills. Is there a difference in the way that you're describing edge work or boundary work with transferring stuff that you know into, into new contexts? Um, 
Well, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think um, the transferability, okay, so transferable skills, that's a hotly contested issue in, in school education, isn't it? it can, is. we, can we transfer anything from physics into music, into PE, into geography? I don't, I, let's not go there today. There has to be good reason, I think, to do it. There has to be a motivation. Um, but, and you, but you might not be aware of that motivation. There might be a drive, if you like, an inner driver that allows you tentatively and then a bit more confidently to take what you've learned either to do or you learn about into another place. I don't think at the level that I'm doing it here, and probably at any level, it is as simple as transferring there is always a process of translation. So you, you take what you know, you understand the new context, you work at that edge on that boundary, you, you sense making backwards and forwards. And as you sense make, it allows you to transfer through translation into other settings and contexts. So right. yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it does. Thank you. Yes, and so so to come, to bring it back to what you were talking about about um, being a parent of adopted children um, and young people, um, I mean, I'm guessing that that was significant in the sense that it was it allowed you to see the world through another perspective. Is that is that sort of what you what you were thinking there? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a an extraordinarily emotional and complicated process to go through. I don't think it's any less so now than it was 20 years ago. Um, but what it, the first thing it did um, was it took me out of my very familiar education settings, schools and universities, and slap man into social work settings. So whether that was because a social worker was visiting uh, to do some introductory work, to start to do the assessment work, or whether that's because we were on a training course to be adoptive parents or going through the kind of legal process bit, you are suddenly in a world of professionals who you're unfamiliar with, who's principal concerns are absolutely valid they're ethical but who are bound up by bureaucracy just in the same way that teachers are but in a whole different setting so just the experience of going through that process to, to becoming adoptive an adoptive parent is an absolute eye-opener particularly when you start to talk about the children for whom the adoptive adopting age adoption agency in this case the local authority are currently responsible for who if you like are released for adoption and you and it starts to become real not just in terms of the prospect of you becoming a parent but also these are absolutely real living and breathing kids who have already had all of this stuff happen to them in their lives and who are about to be hurtled into a whole new world. And when you're a teacher, 
and you see kids in your classroom, they walk through your classroom, they sit down at your desks, they do the work, they walk out again, or you're their form tutor and you get to know them a bit better, and all that sort of stuff. That 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 sudden realization that there are, you know, perhaps a hundred kids released for adoption, and the sorts of stories that are surrounding them, not stories as in fiction, real, that is hugely um humbling and frightening and human Mm. yeah yeah I mean I obviously can't imagine what that's like but um but you you paint a very vivid picture there um and and do you think that this has that this has again coloured your perspective on education oh yes absolutely um and partly from those very early days around multi-agency working, <clears throat> respect being respectful of professional knowledge bases from different um, sectors, um, being able, the importance of being able to navigate those sorts of conversations. I think that's, you know, that that's really critical in terms of what is it that we need our teachers and our school leaders and our school governors and our parents to be able to do successfully maybe not with that particular circumstance or dilemma, but in order to best support children and young people. Um, but also the just the pure fact of bringing three children who were all of nursery age upwards into a family home and immediately enrolling them into schools that were new schools to them um, and having to engage, not in a kind of that traditional fashion of you first put your child's name down when they're, I don't know, two for a nursery or something. And then, you know, that you kind of gradually ease yourself into being a parent of a school-aged child. We were over the Christmas holiday, we were not parents of school-aged children. And then we were parents of three school-aged children by January the 5th. And they were all in school. And they were going into a school in the middle of a school year with teachers they didn't know and peers they didn't know and parents they didn't know, having been uprooted from their various foster homes and rerouted into our family home. And if you like, that is a pretty traumatic thing to experience on all sides, teachers as well. They don't want to see that they just got their classes settled, you know, by Christmas and then suddenly three new kids arrived who had histories. And then seeing those kids through school, college, apprenticeships, falling out of school, being excluded from school, succeeding in this, but not succeeding that, you know, the various hugely complicated journeys that the kids went on as they grew up and went to school, seeing how they settled or didn't, how they were received or weren't, how they were treated well, or not, seeing the judgments that were made of them, seeing how they struggled at times with a school that required them to be really regulated, but they weren't regulated from the moment they woke up in the morning, let alone, you know, throughout a seven hour school day. Mm. That was a real eye opener. Yes, yeah. And lots of the conversations that I've been having with people recently, especially the parents of, of and carers of young people 
who uh, struggle with with anxiety and depression or mental health or who've had who've had adverse childhood experiences is that the the the, the move the shift that we've seen in this country in the last sort of 10 years or so towards um, a sort of a tightening of the screws, if you like, you know, that things are much more locked down, that language like, um, you know, zero tolerance and no excuses behaviour, or sometimes it's presented as warm, strict, but it's, many people would argue that it's more strict than it is warm in the sense of like how it appears. It's very sort of top-down controlling stuff that, that, that those young people um, who find it difficult to regulate themselves, as you say, are the ones who find it much harder to 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 succeed in that tightened system, and that it's sort of it's a way of locking down. You know, like so I saw somebody talking about the mainstream of school, like the mainstream. So to, to to use a geography analogy that you might resonate with, if you think about like a big river, you know, like the mainstream, the kids who are in the middle of that, who are sort of floating quite happily on a lovely raft and they're having a nice time you know, are fine, but there's there's also a load of a load of kids on the on the edges of that, on the boundaries of that system, who are bashing into every rock on the way down towards the sea, you know, the sea of you know adulthood, if you like. Um and you know, I, I, I don't know whether that's something that, that you think about in terms of in, in terms of does it does it make you think that you want to see an education system that's more uh, respectful in, in a similar way to what we're talking about to the respecting the individuality of those 12 teachers on your PGC course to respecting and responding to young people and to offering a more diverse um, experience is that is that sort of I don't want to put words into your no, mouth no you're not putting words into my mouth I think that I mean if I'm honest I think if my kids were seven or eight years younger we'd have had an even harder time and they would have had a harder time at school I think it was you know, given the kind of the general trend um, in schooling in, in England, I think they would have found it tougher again. Um, I feel I I, I, lo- I like that analogy or metaphor of the river. I think that works really well. And I do think that we have created a system, and I'm not going to say in bad faith, because I don't think it was done in bad faith by the majority of people who were if like, instrumental in creating it, mm. which caters well to the people it caters well to. So whether that's the parents, the teachers, or the children and young people, you know, they can function successfully in that system. But that's not everybody. Um I think even where we have people functioning successfully, let's say in a zero zero tolerance type school, and I know there's an argument that they don't really exist and we shouldn't use that language, but we all know the kind of schools we're talking about, I think, that you can, often you can perform to those expectations, but that doesn't mean that you're performing to your ability or that you're expanding your ability, you're growing in a nourished fashion. It basically means that you can survive, you can get through it. But I think there's an awful lot of kids around the edges who are never going to get through that unscathed because they are around the edges for a reason and the system's not catering for them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very clearly the case. And uh, some of the recent conversations, I don't know if you've caught any of them, I've been having some what we call in campfire conversations recently, where we in, including young people and parents and carers in the conversation around, around rethinking education. 
Um, and it's really abundantly clear that, you know, there are lots of young people who are really suffering uh, at the moment in the current system and the, the inflexibility um, doesn't help, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Okay, so so it's clear that we're 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 merging into the rethinking education part of this conversation. So let's so let's get to it. There's three broad categories, um, and we'll probably spend roughly sort of ten minutes on each, and then that'll take us up to the three hour mark, and that'll probably be quite enough for one day. Um, so positives, challenges, and fixes. Let's end on a nice solution-focused note. So let's start with the positives. What do you see as, as uh, really positive stuff that you see happening? And again, this could be on the micro level of like the, the analogy of the like, little crystals of igneous rock pupils, things that you've seen happening on an individual level, or we could be talking about you know the way that the, the, the education system works on a global level or anywhere in between. Take your pick. Okay, so... I do believe, I do see, and I do hear about and read about some absolutely amazing practice where teachers are taking their values with them into their classrooms and into their decisions, which allow them to commit to each learner as an individual to help each learner to reach their potential. So I think a positive thing about education is that that is possible and it does happen. And it's an extraordinarily validating thing, I think, as a child or a young person to be taught by a teacher who sees you for who you are rather than sees what you're not in relation to a system that dictates what you should be. And I think that many, many teachers and school leaders work really hard at that level. I think the system doesn't always help them. I think they're, they often find themselves on the edge, that kind of edge working, that they're, you know, they're, they're in roles that don't necessarily get recognised. They're in, uh, they're working in education settings that may be alternative or different or they're doing things relatively subversively and quietly um, underneath the radar in their schools. But I think there's some fantastic practice. And I think that um, that's, that can be seen at every level. Um, and particularly in FE, actually, I think there's a lot we could learn in our primary and particularly secondary schools from the FE sector. Um, so I think that's a really positive thing. Um, and I think if you then start to combine all of that together, you end up with an education community, whether that's the teachers, the leaders, the governors, parents, who if, if we could, well, and we do, um, at times manage to combine those together into a collective which has an enormous capacity for good work. I mean, I do think that the pandemic really demonstrated that. I mean, with teachers and school leaders have taken a huge amount of bashing, um, as well as being given, uh, you know, the praise that they deserve in, from some quarters, um, but the imagination and the energy and the commitment that all of those talents together can bring to bear 
on the dilemmas and the dynamics that is our education system, I think is, is huge. And I think it's really exciting. Um, and I think that the best work is done where when the profession, and I, I mean profession in its broad sense, so an inclusive profession, is allowed to better understand the circumstances it's in, the dilemmas it face, it's faced with, and to collectively address those. And that's not to suggest that individuals can't make a difference because a collective is made up of individuals. And it's not to suggest that you never need a leader uh, because, of course, at times you do. Um, but I'm not a great um, advocate of hero leaders um, in education. I think that they're often um, not terribly helpful. Um, and I guess if you go up another level, I do think that what, again, if I think... Um, what, what excites me about being in education is that I can go to any part of the world and find an educator and find somebody to have a conversation with about education and recognise things that are going on in classrooms or in universities, recognise stages of child development, whether I'm in, you know, the UK or somewhere much more remote. And I think that it's genuinely exciting to be part of something that's a global endeavour, whether that's being part of a global profession or being, you know, if it, children, I think, get hugely excited when they can see that they have peers all over the world and that they can relate to them and their experiences. So I think that's just, that's really exciting. And there's just no excuses for creating a parochial education system when actually we've got every every bit of kit and every opportunity that we need to create a global one. Yeah, well, that's definitely an upside of the pandemic, isn't it? That like like that we've really like learned um, in a very short space of time just how incredibly empowering and enabling this this technology is now. And if the pandemic had happened even five years ago, I don't think that we would have had the bandwidth to have a decent conversation like this. Never mind, you know, connecting classrooms all over the world. And I, I share I share that with you entirely. The fact that this is a global profession and there's something that's really lovely that's happened I'm not sure if you're aware of it alongside this podcast there's, there's this mighty network a, a, an online collective of, of people who've come together largely from overseas from all over the world um, and it's a it's a wonderful thing indeed and and with my own work you know the, the book that we published which came out in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> which you know is not the best time to release a, a thick book about how to do things very differently but now it's starting to had starting to take root and to to my delight and surprise, that's not generally in the UK. It's happening all over the place. There was a recent podcast called From Page to Practice where they look at, you know, books and how they've been interpreted by people. And there was people who, who were sending in audio clips from Italy and China and Cambodia and literally like none, none, from, none from this country. But, um, you know, people, it, it's a very interconnected world now. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. OK, what do you see as the major challenges that we face? Um, well, I think there's a mentality amongst education policymakers, or at least those that seem to be able to pull the levers. And I include politicians that we need to do education by by design, but the design is not as creative as it could be. Um, and creative is another one of those words, isn't it? Creativity, which often gets um, a battering on social media. Yeah. But I think there is a mentality that what we need to do is 
create systems that are as efficient and functional as possible, put the money that we've got available into them and manage that money through the system. And I'm talking deliberately there about managing money through the system as opposed to thinking really, really carefully about what that then looks like for the experience of the learner through the system. So regardless of whether we're a well-funded or a poorly funded education system, um, I think there's a, there's a, there's a complete drive to manage that money through. Can you explain what you mean? I've not really come across anyone talking about that before. And the sense that I got until you mentioned money was a sense of a sort of a conveyor belt process of, you know, the learners going through and this be this being applied to, to teacher well, education as well. But what do you mean about, about the conveyor belt of money going through the system? I, well, there's two things. I think one of them is that you can't keep a, I mean, the conveyor belt analogy is quite helpful because I think we, we, we have created um, schools, and again, it's not it's not usually on the whim of the teachers and the leaders. It's kind of because by default that this is what ends up happening, that that function a bit like factory lines. Um, and but anything that functions like a factory line requires a resource, and the resource is essentially a budget. You know, if you look, for example, at what's happened to some. Um, of the teaching population in England, we know that in there is a, there has been a significant problem of older teachers who are by default more expensive suddenly discovering themselves on the wrong side of the compliance mechanism. That you know, for whatever reason, they're suddenly being observed and being found to be non-compliant or not good enough or somehow out of kilter with what is deemed to be the right model of education. So that has coincided with a period of time when the budgets have become no more generous than they ever were before, indeed probably much tighter. But not only have the budgets got tighter, the other things that we've had to spend money on have kept growing. And so although teachers are always going to be the biggest cost in an education system, paying teachers' salaries, having enough teachers and paying their salaries is going to be the biggest cost, the, the older and the more experienced teachers who are costing more have found themselves pushed out to be replaced by younger, less experienced teachers who you can either have more of or who you can reduce your costings through um, and that's, in the end, how the money flows through the system. That's a good example. And another example of that would be if we look at some of, if we look at some of the ITE, ITT market review recommendations, it's essentially about creating more um, common units of denomination for teacher training. So, um, you know, a provider will have this many trainees working with this many placement schools and it's kind of chunking everything down so that the money flows in a predictable fashion. I see. Now, I'm not, I mean, I'm not an idiot. We haven't got a, a total endless supply of cash to spend however we'd like to. Has to be done through a budget. But there's a, there is a, you know, there is pretty good evidence, I think, that one of the greatest weaknesses of this current DfE is its failure to secure the budget from the Treasury that actually our young people deserve in education and our teachers deserve to do their job. But they have never argued the case. They talk about savings and efficiencies. They don't talk about investment. They don't talk about resourcing the future 
through a good education. They talk about slimming down the costs of what we've got now, wringing more out of the system. And that's seen as the triumph rather than we've made the moral case that education needs funding properly. Yes. Yeah, and I thought that uh, the age of austerity was declared to be over, wasn't it? But it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have uh, to to have sunk in at the DfE. No, and yet. there's the, all those slights of hand. So the sleight of hand around the pupil premium and the backdating of the census point around the pandemic. And Can this, you hang on? Explain what that is. Okay, so there were so pupil premium income to schools is based on the number of children in receipt of free school meals. That's the, that's the core um, measure. Um, and that's usually done at a census point throughout the year, which then gives you the budget for the, for the following year. And as the pandemic hit and the number of children who would be eligible for free school meals because their parents' income had dropped, as the number was projected to rise, the census date when the pupil premium budget was fixed was brought forward unexpectedly so that it wouldn't take into account some of the rise in the number of actual children who would be deemed eligible for free school meals, removing millions and millions of pounds out of the school meals, uh, the people premium budget. Mm. So nobody's saying that there was less money going in via pupil premium money, but the pupil premium money was being managed in such a way that it wasn't likely to cover the needs of the actual number of children who would really need it because they suddenly became ineligible because of a simple census day. Now that was a political sleight of hand. Wow. That's a new one on me. I mean, you can see, can't you, the, 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 the sort of like when you're, when you're dealing with, with at the top end, like, like this is one of the reasons that I'm really interested in this idea of vertical size teams. And I really think that you should have vertical size politics where you have People who people rep, like like all the different stakeholders who are represented by a particular policy, they should be in the DFE at the top tables. You should have like like pupil power should be in there talking about the perspective of young people. You should be talking to have like academics in there. You should have people who are working in CAMs, for example, and you should be looking at like all of these multiple perspectives from a range of different human lenses. But as it is, we just have this very top-down approach. And so the people at the, at, in, in positions of power, and it's not just in the DfE, it goes across, across politics, are systems thinkers. And they're, they're, they're only thinking about it from the position of, of policy. And for example, they're like, oh, this is going to lead to bad headlines, is essentially what lots of it seems to come down to, isn't it? Like lots of the pronouncements, we're going to ban mobile phones, we're going to bring back Latin. Those things seem to be mainly about like being seen to be doing something rather than actually doing something, because actually doing something is, you know, a lot harder to do. It's partly about optics. And I think that part of the mentality is like, this will look bad. If we if we have to, you know, to if the people premium bill goes up through the roof, we're going to have to go to the treasury and argue for, for a lot more money. And that isn't going to happen because of furlough. And so, you know, we need to sort of to deal with this on a, on a systems level. How can we make the money flow rather than thinking, oh my goodness, there's a pandemic. There's many more children are going to be pushed beneath the poverty line. What can we do to address this on a, on a human level? They're thinking about it in terms of policy and money flow. I, I can, I can see the point that you're making. So, yeah, so I do, I think that that that's a problem. Um, and I think, uh, you know, part of that, um, the, and these things are always related, are our current 
obsession with exams. So um, there's lots of reasons why I think exams, not I'm not saying exams are a bad thing, but our obsession with exams in our judgment of how an individual child or how a teacher or how a school or how a mat or how a local authority are doing, that has become a problem. And one of the problems with our obsession about exams, it's actually allowed the budget for exams to just keep growing and growing, and growing, because we have allowed them to take such significance. And they and it sucks out a huge amount of money from an education system um, and drives a certain set of behaviours, which are not always the sorts of behaviours um, that we might think are best suited to the individuals and to, and to, to people growing and learning. I agree completely. So, so we'll come on to fixes in a moment. Obviously, like the, 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 the challenges and the fixes are sort of two sides of the same coin, but we'll come on to that because I know that you've got some thoughts about how we can address the over-reliance on exams. Uh, is there anything else in the, in the challenges um, category that you, that you think is worth a mention? I, I think we haven't cracked teacher workload. Um, and again... I am saying that from the outside, so um, I acknowledge that in some schools and for some teachers, the, the if you like the right balance has has probably been found. But I think generally, um, in England and potentially elsewhere, teacher workload is a significant driver of many of the problems that we have in education. And I think, for example, it drains people of their mental energy to think differently mm. i think it absorbs um time in bureaucracy often quite a lot of that driven by exams uh where that time could be better allocated elsewhere in the system to better use i think it disregards the fact that teachers are people and that a high workload might be okay for somebody currently able-bodied without too many other family commitments, um, young, healthy, all the rest of it, that actually trying to drive people at that level as they go through what are often very complicated adult family lives and inevitable health episodes essentially means that the job of teaching has become one which is unsustainable for a lot of people who would actually be otherwise very well suited to it and do a huge amount of good in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has come up a number of times before and absolutely, and, and especially this year, like, I mean, the, the whole thing around, how, you know, insisting on teachers um, doing such an insane amount of additional workload in terms of uh, teacher-assessed grades um, and moderating and, and evidencing the, the, the children's results. And largely, it seemed to be uh, a, a, an accountability exercise, right? It was like a way of making it look like things were still robust, um, you know, and actually the extent to which to which that moderation was actually done seems quite questionable all of this additional extra work that teachers had to do and my goodness what a year it has been you know there's been so many pinch points throughout the year and you think this like surely nothing else can come along and then something else comes along and the, the end of the year after having assessed the year 11s 
pretty much relentlessly for the last sort of three or four months or so. And then they finally leave. And then all of a sudden, you know, they have to, they have to assess all of the other year groups as well. And the teachers literally on their, no, not literally, you know what I mean? On their knees, just crawling towards the end of term. Um, yeah. It's been an unbelievably challenging year, but, but even prior to this, you know, I, I agree. I mean, there, there was some evidence that workload had got better, hadn't there? The, 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 the average number of hours a week that teachers were reporting prior to the pandemic had come down a little bit, as I recall. Yeah, I think there was a slight improvement. Um, and that would be uh, partly, I guess, because people were more aware of it as a priority that Ofsted could ask what were you doing around teacher workload, that the DfE had a number of strategies. And, you know, it is right to, to look at this from the point of view of the system. Um, but I, I think the problem with teacher workload is rather than saying what are the root causes of teacher workload, we tend to say, well, what can we do as a quick fix? So and there's something I'll say about the, the assessment in a minute. If, if you've got teachers who are really struggling to balance their workload, a quick fix is to say, here are some scripted lessons. You don't have to plan your own lessons now. Because without doubt, teachers will clock in the hours planning lessons. And if there's a survey, they'll say, because it's true, this is how many hours a week I spend planning for this many lessons a week that I have to teach. So if that looks like that's a pinch point, then an answer can be, well, teachers don't need to plan lessons because we can make available a script for a lesson. You can download all the resources you need for the lesson. Oh, for heaven's sake, you can already click on a video and there's the lesson being taught for you if it all gets too much. Um, and that, that's lapped up and it's seen as the solution. And I'm not saying that there is never a case for using some of those scripts or those resources or, or that material, but it's, it's a very short-sighted way to treat teachers who actually really need to know how to plan lessons that are catering for the learning needs of the actual children in front of them, yeah. that are nuanced to the point in the curriculum that you're at, and that actually give you an enormous sense of professional achievement when the lessons you plan become lessons that you teach well, become lessons that kids learn from well. That sequence is a really positive feedback loop. So if we remove some of the positive feedback loops on the basis of cutting workload, then your workload might have gone down a little bit, but your sense of achievement as a professional might have been eroded along the way. So you might start then kicking into other problems. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, thank you. So let's move on to solutions now. So, so you've identified these three problems. We've, we've got like the sort of the conveyor belt factory line mentality of education policymakers. We have an over-reliance on exams and teacher workload. So let's start with the policymakers how do we how do we uh, overcome this this challenge? Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to preface this by reminding you that at the beginning of the podcast, you reminded me that academics don't have good answers to <laughs> <Stop> all <laughs> the problems. So you know these these are tentative suggestions rather than necessarily perfect answers. 
it's important though to have a little intellectual humility like that though isn't it which is often something else that we might add to our list of challenges that is lacking in our political leaders that we don't see much um you know uncertainty and entertaining alternative possibilities like you say things just seem to be have already been worked out this this argument has been already already you know solved and here's the solution so i i welcome that that little bit of intellectual humility <laughs> rachel thank you okay that's good so let's start with um the bottom line which is money um i think it's not about flooding the system with money indiscriminately, but it is about acknowledging that if we actually want a world-class education system, which this DfE often claims it is building, you have to find ways to resource it. And there are two main ways to resource it. One is to increase the budget, and the second is to decide what no longer needs to happen. And some things I think that we spend huge amounts of money on, we could probably... Um, spend less on without doubt in any school um, I remember as a governor always being shown the if like the spreadsheets the budgets for the school year and being reminded that you know the the, the the vast majority of the income would be spent on staffing with that niggling sense of unease that the head teacher was looking to cut some staff in order to save other bits of the budget and that would require you know all sorts of difficult conversations and decisions but without doubt, if the DfE in itself to believe that education is something that utterly has to be invested in, it becomes the greatest resource that we have for our communities, our society and our individuals and their futures, can generate a greater capacity to fund staffing. And that can ease a lot of pressure. And it can also allow us to include those older teachers in the profession who are suddenly finding themselves out of work because their salary costs are too high. It was a really interesting piece of research, I think, NFER probably did it, that, you know, we've got more primary, well, the number of teachers leaving teacher education this year and going into jobs has dropped. So we've essentially got more out of work teachers, which DFE will probably think is a jolly good thing. But what, of course, that means is that we've got a whole set of talents that aren't going to be used at the point where they most need nurturing before they lose that kind of enthusiasm and new knowledge capacity that they're bringing in. And actually, this would have been an, a perfect opportunity to say to head teachers, we're going to give you some additional funding and we want you to use it to employ more staff pro rata so that we can respond more to some of the impacts of the pandemic in terms of providing for intervention classes. I hate that word intervention, catch up yeah. classes, you know, enabling more pastoral work, enabling um, more people to be on the ground, watching out, you know, for kids and, and their learning, for communication between schools and families. Actually, we could have released a lot of potential if instead of saying, well, oh, we seem to have a lot of unemployed new teachers. So we shouldn't have any unemployed new teachers. They're all absolutely vital ingredients to the success. Let's make sure we find the resource that we need to get them into posts. So I think finding more funding for staffing is essential. And I think it is partly about adding more money in, uh, but I also think it's sometimes about asking ourselves, do we use the money we have for staffing as best as we might do? And I'll just give you an example of somewhere that does it quite differently. And I'm not going to say necessarily it's better, but it's different. I went to meet teachers in Western Quebec in Canada 
And as I sat at a round table with a dozen teachers asking them what their jobs were, I, it was their responses didn't make sense. They weren't familiar to me. Um, and the first thing I noticed was nobody said that they were in charge of anything. They didn't have a teacher in charge of or a head of department or they're just teachers. And I kind of like, well, have we missed out a whole kind of level of middle and senior leaders in this roundtable group? No, 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 no. This is this is kind of very representative. This is inclusive. Okay. So you haven't got these multiple layers of leadership. How, how does the school work? So you've got in this particular secondary school I visited, 65 teachers, two deputy principals, and one principal, and no other management layer. So I kind of said, well, how do your departments run? How do your year groups run? How does your in, in, initiative on this run? They said, well, we're, we're all professionals. We're all teachers. We can all contribute. We can all make decisions. We can all step up to a bit of leadership when it's needed and then hand that over to somebody else when the job requires their talents to do it. And we're all paid well enough that we don't, we don't need to scramble up a career ladder because our basic salary is good enough and it goes up incrementally. And so they had a completely different way of deploying the funding available to staff the schools into the roles and responsibilities that teachers had. And, you know, I said, well, what about your CV? If you've never been a middle leader, how do you become a principal? And they were like, well, because we're going to get enough mentoring and support if we choose to do it. But there's not very many jobs at that level. So actually, it doesn't matter for the majority of us. We just want to be really good teachers. And we, we the school runs because we're really good teachers. We function. It's good. And that was just a different way of looking at the school. And the other thing, which, that, again, like I kept saying, so what is your main job? Somebody said, well, I'm Y7 Maths. Okay, what are you? I'm Y9 science. Okay. Hang on a minute. What does Y9, Y7? I said in, in England, that means year seven, year nine. Yeah, that's that's me. I teach all the Y7 maths. I teach all the set all the year seven, all the maths. Oh do you teach anything that else? makes sense. Hey. Yeah. I said, do you teach year eight, year nine? No. So I teach year Y9, Y7. So have you always taught Y7? No, not always, but this is what I'm best at. So this is what I do. Love and it. I get better at it every year because I've found my niche. And I don't have to plan from Y7 to Y13, from year 27 to year 13. And I said, well, what about your CV? That's going to look like a really – CVs don't matter because there aren't any middle leadership posts to go for. We just do our jobs and we love doing them and we do them really well and we get the right people in the right place. Now, I am not saying that every single teacher in Western Quebec is completely content and that every school runs extraordinarily well. But what I am saying, and that's just you know, one example of a region that works in this way, but there are other ways to deploy staff in schools and get the best out of everybody. And we have got ourselves hooked up on a hugely hierarchical and therefore quite expensive staffing structure. And we deem that to be essential to make our schools work. We also deem it to be essential to give people professional career pathways. And you don't necessarily see that replicated in other parts of the world. That is fascinating. Both of those things um, are absolutely news to me. The idea of a much, a much more flattened leadership hierarchy so that teachers are collaborating in the maths department, say, or they're not necessarily even need to collaborate. So the Y7 maths teacher, they're responsible for writing and teaching the Y7 maths lessons for the whole. So you don't need to have, because that's what, what is often done 
in in schools i was a secondary school science teacher um and there was endless rewrites of the curriculum i was teaching for about 12 years i think we went through three rewrites of the curriculum and it's all hands to the pump when it's the, when it, when that happens and it's like right everyone gets given one scheme of work for for you know the year yeah. nine thing say they're all written in very different styles some of them in in men's depth some of them have been phoned in it seems with like three bullet points under each heading and then and then you just get your head around how to teach that and then the whole thing changes all over again um so i love that but the idea of just teaching year seven maths is is ingenious because that yeah that would let's, let's say there's sort of seven year seven maths classes in the year if you've got a, an average secondary school let's say there's like 130 150 kids then that's that's like a full teaching load isn't it that's pretty much you know 20 to 25 lessons a week you just teach the year sevens that's just Genius. Yeah, and you could say, well, yeah, that's going to be a very lonely experience, uh, but I genuinely don't think it is. I mean, certainly these teachers didn't report it as such. They had a very strong mentoring and coaching culture. And one of the reasons that they were able to sustain that was because they had enough time around the edges to have mentoring and coaching relationships and conversations because they weren't busy micromanaging each other. Yeah, I think the one thing that I would change maybe would be to have it so that there's two people on each year group because I think oh, that I think people, yeah, they're often, yeah they're often were people yeah. people work a lot better when there's someone to bounce mm. ideas around against yeah um, yeah so when they said I am uh, a y seven maths they didn't necessarily mean the only one <laughs> um, yeah yeah but of course the other thing is that there would be other y seven math specialists in other schools that they would do quite a lot of collaboration with so but, I mean there's yeah. it, it's it's a different it's a different way certainly when I was a teacher the kind of the crunch was have you got GCSE and A level classes because if you haven't how are you going to get a promoted post I've heard a few things from Canada because like once I worked in a school and there was there was a huge amount of staff turnover one year and they just like got a load of NQTs in from Canada um, to make up the numbers and they were sort of looking at the, what we were doing they were like this doesn't make sense in a number of ways that like grading they don't they don't grade kids they would have they would give them a percentage but also the teacher would set the set the end of year end of year test rather than it being sort of mandated from mm-hmm. an exam board the teacher would set the test based on the knowledge of what they'd covered that year um and also as i recall one of them i remember having a long conversation with about the way that the timetable works and that they, they at any one point in time they would teach far fewer subjects but for more amount of the time so you would have like half a day of french and then half a day of geography, and it would be done in much bigger chunks. And you would only be studying, say, five or six subjects at any mm-hmm. one time rather than 10 or 11. Yeah. And of course, you know, we have to remember Canada's made up of numerous provinces, not numerous, but a number of provinces, each one with its own jurisdiction. So they're not all the same. And there are a number of um, reforms going through those provinces, some of which, you know, we might look at and say, well, I wouldn't do that because that's kind of the, those are the mistakes we've made. But what was really interesting about talking to those teachers in Canada was how many of them had taught temporarily in England, particularly London, how all of them who had said, I'm not going back there, I would not be a teacher in England, and how many, well, not many, but how the several teachers I met in Canada who were English, who had trained to teach in England and worked in England, said that they found the culture of teaching significantly better in these particular schools that they worked in. And these were not cosy schools. This was a school where um, at the end of the day, um, 70 yellow buses turned up to take kids an hour to two hours away back into the wow. kind of backwards areas. These were not, you know, the metropolitan elite schools. Mm. 
Yeah, fascinating. Okay, what else have you got in terms of fixes? I'm liking what you what you have to offer so far. Well, I guess that first one leads into another one, which is to be really confident that we don't have all the answers here and that actually we can learn an awful lot from other countries and how they um, manage and run and fail to run their education systems. And I don't mean cherry-picking the odd policy uh, like uh, Mastery Maths, which is not in itself a bad thing, but definitely used as a cherry-picked item is not great. Um, so we can learn a lot from other countries, and we can also learn a lot from the past. I think we're ever so, again, we're teachers, we're always looking at the future. We're looking at, well, what will these kids progress on to? You know, what's the what's the next thing I've got to, you know, do this redesign of this curriculum? We're always looking forwards. We often don't look back, and we also don't often have the sorts of staff room cultures and conversations anymore where people fall into conversation around practices from the past. And again, I'm not idolising the past, but what I am saying is that we are in a situation where we could learn a lot if we just took our blinkers down, engaged in more open, honest kind of appreciation of what other people do or have done and what we can learn from them. Yeah. And there's that bit there about, yes, but it's not directly transferable, but it's not this transferability. It's the ability to take ideas and translate them, to contextualize them, to make sense of them. But you can't do that if you don't actually have opportunity to engage with those other ideas. Yes. Yeah. And that links clearly to your to your comments around um, our over-reliance on exams. And I'm sure you know that we've, we've spoken about it a number of times on this podcast, the, the Rethinking Assessment Group that's up and running at the moment, which is looking at assessment practices all around the world. I know that you're sort of interested in this idea of a learner profile, which is a much more like rounded picture of what a young person has achieved and is capable of. Well, absolutely. I can honestly say that if my three kids having gone through school didn't just have this odd collection of random GCSEs that are either passed or failed as the end point, but actually had something a bit more holistic about who they'd been, yeah. what they'd been, what they'd achieved, what their skills were, um, and that actually were evident whilst they were at school. It's not as if they were hidden, they were evident, um, and actually were given some credit for that. I think that would give have given them a better launch pad into their future. So if it would work for them, why not everybody else? Um, and certainly there are some much better examples of learner assessment, I think, where elsewhere in the world where often you know maybe not mainstreamed but where, which are emerging and are allowed to emerge I think what's what's problematic here is that we're not really allowed to experiment with stuff in the same way that we might to really find some better alternative methods yes yeah thank you um and uh, is there a, is there one more um I seem to remember well I mean three. it seems it seems like a, a fairly naive thing to say but a lot of the problems are driven by a lack of or a particular uh, way of thinking at policy level I think which and that's a that, that's a central policy DfE that then gets translated down through for example mats and um and I'm not I'm not uh, bad mouthing mats but they they kind of funnel those policies so do local authorities just sorry just to be clear in case of any international listeners so a mat is a multi-academy well, trust yeah multi-academy trust so a group of schools um governed by a, the same group of trustees um uh, and run in a sort of uh, hopefully a, a 
a way which makes sense for them to be a group of schools together. Um, and I, I, I guess it's about this notion of uh, policy and policy makers. And, and I mean at all levels, um, you know, whether it's actually deducing the behaviour policy for your school or whether it's about thinking about the assessment policy for the whole of England. Um, I think we are in a, a difficult situation where too few people are involved, where too many voices are missing, where we don't have the sorts of conversations that really get to the heart of what the dilemma is. And I think the IT market review is a good example of that, that we haven't, we're now being thrown something to consult on with many of us feeling that it's a fairly hollow consultation. Let's hope it isn't. But rather than actually having been involved as experts or stakeholders or whatever phrase you want to use, as ideas are generated and tested and trialed and evolve over time. So I think the actually just rethinking how we do policy at all levels and whose voice is, is um, present is really critical. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've been thinking a lot about this recently. Um, and it's apart from anything, just from a practical standpoint, if you do that, you're more likely to bring people with you. Like it's more likely that whatever it is that you want to happen will be successful if you bring people with you rather than like people don't like being told what to do. They don't like having change foisted upon them. And like you say, consultations that are hollow are sort of almost worse than no consultation at all. You need to really listen to people and take their perspective on board because people know stuff that you don't know, you know. They do. Um, they do. And they it's do. actually quite helpful to, to consult people in a meaningful way. And I think it allows, um, again, you could argue, well, that's just really naive. Not everybody can be at the policy table. And that, that's not the point. Of course, not everybody can be. But I think that sense that policy is remade at every level. It has to be, otherwise it isn't contextualised, it doesn't work. There are, you know, there are um, points of fracture and there are people who fall out of the system because policy doesn't get kind of reconfigured and remade at the levels that it needs to be. And it's at those levels that people can be really much more included than they are, as well as at the very top. Definitely. And and I don't think that it's that, you know, you're right that not everybody can be at the policy table, but you can have like a large number of, of key stakeholder groups represented at that policy table, um, at least in the planning stage, but like arguably in the execution stage as well. Um, it's doable. And that's a lot of the work that I'm doing at the moment is based on that very idea, which maybe is a conversation for another time. Um, because we've been speaking for quite a long time, as you may have noticed. Um, thank you very much. I've, re I've really enjoyed that conversation. And there's lots to think about. Um, I, I'm loving some of those solutions that I've not really thought much about before. Um, I'll just end by asking, what does the future hold for you? Is there anything on the horizon that you would like to share or, or, or potentially to ask of our listeners? Well, um, gosh, I'm really looking forward to getting back to some sort of normality uh, but I am um, I don't have any grand plans for major shake-ups in my working life which means that the thing I will continue to do is grow and develop collective ed as the center for coaching mentoring and professional learning um, work with my network so we have a group of fellows um, and we have a group of contributors and I, I kind of want to find as much opportunities I can 
to learn from and with them and to help them form and feel part of a strong community from whom they can learn. So the collective ed piece of work, I think, is, is I hope, a really important piece of work going forward. Um, and I think it's, it is important, I and mean, you acknowledged this, that the early career framework, for example, introduces mentoring into those first two years of a teacher's career in England. And I think mentoring is um, an essential part of that, of how this will work. And it's really good to see it kind of coming out from the limelight. Um, but I hope to be part of continuing to support that work. And I, I think the other thing is just to continue to bridge this. I think early on you said there's an inevitable divide or gap between research and practice. It's quite a hard thing to bridge it. And it is. But if you believe in boundary crossing and edge work, then I think it's one that's always very fertile and worth working on. So I'm going to continue to do that in whatever form that takes. Wonderful. Well, I should let you get on with with all of that and uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for sharing your time very generously and your ideas. I really appreciate the work that you do and I've very much enjoyed getting to know you a little better. Well, thank you. And well done to anybody who listens to this from the beginning to the end in one <laughs> sitting, because it's a good, a good long one. Good long chat. It's yeah. Nice. Lots of people break them up into chunks, but sure. lots of lots of people get in touch to say that their whole house is cleaned by the end of an episode. Well, well good luck with your cleaning then. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Time is a measure of change.